Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. Let us help you escape your mind. Welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. We have episode number 263 tonight. And we are live. And we are joined by Ladies and gentlemen. We are joined by special guest, uh, Randall Carlson. Uh, Randall's been on the show a couple times in the past. If you're interested in those episodes, I believe both of them are uh, about Atlantis and metaphysics. You can check out those links down below. Um, and, uh, yeah, Randall's got some interesting stuff coming up. If you're interested, he's going to be on Joe Rogan on the 11th with Graham Hancock. Um, Graham Hancock has that new show coming out, Ancient Apocalypse, and, uh, Randall will be on that show. What episode is that, Randall? Is that eight? Episode eight? I will be on episode eight. Okay. The climax of the whole series. Awesome. Super, super excited for that. Um, and if you're interested in any of Randall's stuff, I have all the links down below, his YouTube channel, his podcast link to Cosmographia, his website, and his HowTube uh, page. He's also doing a special this Sunday night um, on the Day of the Dead. So look forward to that as well. Um, Boo. Also, <laughs> also, before we get started, um, I started a new podcast on the side with our producer, Shane, and our other buddy, Toby. Shout out to Toby. Uh, shout out to Chase. It is called the Roswell UFO Symposium. Uh, we're gonna. It's gonna be mostly on the UFO UAP subjects, um, but we're gonna have tons of the top, you know, minds and guests uh, in that field on there. So go check that out. Uh, I have the link tree link down below. And if you want to um, support Mind Escape, all you have to do is click the link down below. Um, the link tree. Uh, we've got a merch store. We've got a Patreon. We've done two uh, Patreon episodes with Randall. The first one we did was on sacred geometry. Uh, he gave us a little lesson. And then the second one was on the cosmic numbers. Both very, very good episodes. So go check that out if you're a Patreon member. Uh, if you're not, you can join pretty easily. Just click out the link. And um, yeah, shout out to Sandy. I've got the uh, Plutonian caves behind me. Our friend of the show, Sandy, just went to Eleusis and basically went through all the ritual Ooh. sites and everything so 
Uh, can't can't wait to catch up with her when she gets back. So shout out to Sandy. Uh, but without further ado, welcome back, Randall. How are you? Doing well, Mike. Thanks for having me back. It, it's been a while. Um, I was starting to get a little concerned because I was thinking that maybe you guys didn't love me anymore. But, no, we um, love you, bro. Don't worry about that. Okay. All that's right. how I that's how I feel now. sometimes. So don't worry about just it. Just busy with stuff. Oh, okay. Just busy. We actually okay. were working on a documentary. It should we're going to release it in March uh, at the Roswell uh, UFO Expo. Um, so again, check that out if you're interested and you're interested in our documentary, which is called "The Experiences from UAP to DMT." But we might change the name because there's some copyright stuff going on. So, uh, but yeah, oh. no, no. Uh, there's no harsh feelings, Randall. We love you. Oh, you're welcome, good. Okay. You're welcome on any time. I, I feel so much better now, and I just made a mess, spilled my coffee. Uh-oh. So we, I was going to talk about some catastrophes tonight, so it's appropriate, I guess, that we start off. I was going to say, you start off with catastrophe. one. <laughs> yeah, start off with Although, as far as I know, there's going to be no widespread global mortality resulting from this one. Um, no mass extinction events or uh, any of that so uh, anyhow so no the biggest loss now i don't there. <laughs> now i don't have my cup my cup of coffee has a quarter inch in it uh-oh and it was brewed up special it was uh fresh ground from imported sumatran coffee Ooh. um very delicious coffee my favorite now that i've Sounds so uh good. yeah it's um a real tragedy. What Just can blame I say? Maurice. He's back. We can. Yeah, blame him. I, that's. I'm, I'm the scapegoat. You know what I mean. I'll take the blame. It's all right. I'm used to it. Okay, that's good to know. <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> I could use a few more scapegoats in my life. Beautiful. Um, so, what I need. See, here's the thing. Look at this. Now, notice this cup gets narrower towards the bottom. Yeah, that's so that's right a there. Flawed design there. It's a flaw. It should get wider to the bottom, yeah. right? And then it yeah. doesn't. Um, you can never get it right. I've got this Yeti. I just took a sip and I forgot how hot this keeps coffee because I usually drink cold water out of it. And I almost uh -huh. burned my mouth. So, oh, yeah, all, I see the. Yeah, yeah we're all I a see mess. the bliss. Gotta be yeah. careful yeah. with the Yetis. The Yetis. Now, how did the Yetis suddenly get into the conversation? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how we got there, but I'll tell you what. <laughs> I don't believe in somehow. Him. Oh. <laughs> so, uh, do you guys think that um, that the Bigfoot? Not to get off on the discussion of Bigfoot, I'll just ask you: Do you guys think that um, it may be somehow uh, uh, related to Gigantopithecus? At yeah. least the Yeti. That I always mean, struck me as being a possible. Not that it's necessarily Gigantopithecus, but something closely related to Gigantopithecus. If, the, not having seen one personally myself, I don't know. When the right. day I see one, then I will be convinced, but. I mean, I've been talking with some people um, from doing this other podcast, this UFO podcast on the mm -hmm. side that seem to really believe, you know, intelligent, some intelligent people that believe Bigfoot's out there. I am very skeptical. I, I'm, I'm gonna go as far as 99% a physical Bigfoot does not exist. However, this is something I've been saying for a long time, and I truly believe this. Um, because you mentioned Giganopithecus, I think it's entirely possible that um, 
since we lived alongside these things at some point, and there are yeah. all these or- oral traditions and Native American myths and everything, I think it's possible that we're having some sort of epigenetic memory or flashback. Uh, maybe oh. our fear center, yeah. our amygdala, or our adrenaline gets pumping. And, you know, like you run up the stairs and something's chasing you kind of a thing, and it kind of gives you like a fear response. So I think it has something to do with that, to be honest with you. But I'm open-minded. If somebody was like, hey, I've got Bigfoot bones, and it like checks out, I'm down for it. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah we, I've got a self we had selfie a, we had a... posing with a Bigfoot, so... <clears throat> well then you've cracked the case i do too but it actually turned out to be one of my uncles so <laughs> okay <laughs> where do you stand where do you stand on it i'm kind of with you I, I i'm skeptical but at the same time open-minded like i said i you know when i first discovered the existence i mean i was in middle school literally so i mean this was when the first stuff started coming out i who was the author back then who wrote um several best-selling books uh would have been in the in the 60s uh dealing with i mean you know you may we talked about john keel a little earlier and mm-hmm. you know he was one of the early authors who addressed the ufo phenomena there was let's see uh it'll come to me in a second it was a, one of the Valet. very first books who uh, no even Heineck. before i even before those guys it wasn't specifically about ufos it was more about cryptozoology mm. I, although i don't think he used that term i don't think the term cryptozoology had been invented yet i think um, i know who you're talking about i can't remember the name though if somebody it'll knows, come back pop it in the comments okay yeah who i'm talking this would have been 60s he came out with um is it something unknown? Um, it'll come to me. It's one of those things that's buried way back there. I mean, I literally read the book when I was probably 14 years old, 15 years old. But he dealt a lot. He had stories in there about sightings of Bigfoot and all of that. And, of course, at that stage in my life, yeah, I really wanted to believe there was Bigfoots out there. <clears throat> but um, now I'm a little older and a little more skeptical. Well, I just – I, 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 I would think that you could find something, right? Some sort of physical evidence. And look, there's a lot of people that put a lot of time into this, but oh yeah, I don't know. I, I haven't well, seen anything know, worth investing a lot of my time into it. So when Joe Rogan, remember he did that ill-fated series for a while. Yeah. What was it? Joe Rogan uh, investigates everything. Yeah, Joe um, Rogan questions everything. Questions everything. Well, yeah, he he. I think went into, he, you know, dealt with the Bigfoot thing, at least on one or two episodes or something. And I think he came away less of a believer than he went into it. Uh-huh. I think that's uh, the option. I never saw the shows. I should go back and review them. Um, yeah. But I, I think that was the gist of it was that um, he maybe decided that a lot of the Bigfoot community was a little bit out on the fringe. <laughs> Well, that, that brings up another good point, though, I think too. It's, I think it's just like the uh, – go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to say, I think it's kind of just like the uh, the Loch Ness Monster thing. I think that there might have been something saw, like seen at one point, and then it probably died off. But I, at this point, I, I it's hard to believe that no one's been able to capture anything with – the technology that we have. Yeah. But then again, I know a lot of people think it's some kind of interdimensional type of creature too. So that, yeah, there, there is there's that. that. I would say this though, too. And you mentioned that <laughs> there's the, the, the outskirts or the wild man or feral man, uh, hypothesis too, that 
since the beginning of civilization, there's always been these people that have kind of just lived on their own or like not hermits per se, uh, but people that are like feral human beings, you know, that live on the mm-hmm. outskirts of society that get hairy and, you know, I mean, it could be something like that too. So, Have either one of you guys ever read the Epic of Gilgamesh or Gilgamesh, Mm -hmm. the character Enkidu? You know, I've read multiple versions of that, but I always kind of started thinking, you know, wild, big, huge, wild, hairy guy living out in the (laughs) woods. And this Enkidu sounds an awful lot like Sasquatch. Yeah. I wonder if there's any connection there. I wonder too. I mean, I've I've tried to make a lot of those correlations as well, but uh, they never really seem to work out well for me. Um, but before we get going into the um, catastrophism, um, there's something I brought up to you, and I want to mention it because I think it's kind of important. So last time you were on, uh, the first thing we talked about was the Chicago Fire and the – how do you sp- pronounce it? And the Pesh- Peshtigo. 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 The Peshtigo, Peshtigo. Forest Fires mm-hmm. um, yeah. and all that devastation. So about a week and a half ago – I was thinking, man, we got to get Randall back on the show. And literally, I'm not joking you, later that day, um, I was driving and I was listening to Operation Trojan Horse on uh, Audible. Okay. And I've read it a few times, but I didn't really remember this or put two to two together. But um, he mentions in there, I think it's chapter two or chapter three, I forget, but he talks about October 8th, 1871, Mrs. O'Leary's discontented uh, cow kicked over a lantern causing you know the chicago fire that's what most people like to believe and then he goes into uh most people forget there was a gigantic fireball that was seen flying low over several states that caused death and destruction not seen again until world war ii air raids um and i think this is important because you know even though operation trojan horse is about the phenomenon and ufos and uap and all that stuff he's talking about a fireball you're talking about a fireball Everybody's talking about a fireball, you know, or you two, I should say, are talking about a fireball. And you had no connection to that. You, When I mentioned it to you, you had no idea what I was talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that's important because there's two people who do a lot of research that are pointing to this event and saying, hey, there's this fireball thing happening here. So I don't know. And I, does he give a source for that or are there accounts? Are old no, I mean, I could probably look into it more. And... Yeah, I could probably look into it more. But that was just, it was kind of, he passed, he mentions it, uh, mentions it just like quickly and kind of moves on. He doesn't really go into uh-huh. it. He's just talking about like who, mythology who? and, you know. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, yeah, I, I don't know specifically about a documented fireball. Now, in a lot of the anecdotal accounts, people are describing things that could be very much like a fireball. Okay. But to say that there was a fireball that passed over several states on October 8th, 1871, uh, I don't know of a specific documented account. I'm going to have to go back and do a little research now uh, to see. I haven't, I have not seen that hmm. um, as far as, um, you know, b- back in those days, I mean, even the scientific press was regularly reported on meteorite and fireball sightings and things. I've got many many in my archives of uh you know on such and such a date over such and such a state you know Mm -hmm. many people witnessed a a great fireball going over without necessarily there being any fires although it's a consequence Mm. so that in itself uh you know may not you know i mean there's lots of fireballs meteorites even to crash to the earth without setting off a firestorm and he does say 
And yeah, you could say that there probably were not fires on that scale until some of the, you know, the fire bombings of, oh, you know, Tokyo and Dresden um, were both examples of non-nuclear firestorms that yeah, were I created mean, what, by... Yeah, what, 100,000 people died in Tokyo um, yeah. from napalm. You know, that's actually more than the atomic bomb, or I guess both atomic bombs combined, the first two, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Well... Yeah, and I, th- I think, you know, the atomic bombs, when you include the, the uh, radi- deaths due to radiation over oh, the next yeah. couple of years, I think it would exceed. Um, right. But, yeah, those fire bombings were horrible affairs. And, you know, in the immediate wake of the, um, of the atomic bombings, the high command, uh, the Japanese military, didn't really understand because they had already seen the firebombing of Tokyo. And if you look at Tokyo, the aftermath of that, it looks every bit as devastated as Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So in looking at the aftermath, they weren't really even realizing that there was like this bomb of a, of a, of a completely different nature that had, you know, uh, been invented. They didn't know that till later. Actually. And I think post Nagasaki, you know, there was a whole, they had, God, I mean, they had, they were busily uh, creating three or four more deliverable bombs that they were planning to deploy against Japan. Um, and who was it that uh, ultimately put a stop to that? Oh, I think it was probably Truman. Truman said enough. Two is enough. Well, I think- um, yeah, I mean, there's a great doc, or there's a great biography. It's called American Prometheus about Oppenheimer, uh, mm-hmm. where Oppenheimer, after he didn't, after the first one, he didn't. He felt like very ashamed of himself, and he didn't want to have anything to do with it. Right. So he did. He kind of instructed him on what to do with the wind and everything for the second one, but he really didn't want anything part of it. And then they came after him because he didn't want to have anything to do with the hydrogen bomb uh, projects, right. and that's why they, you know, eventually went after him. So. Yeah, and he. Uh, well, I'm. Uh, some, I've learned some new things about Oppenheimer recently and some of the other things that he was, he's so connected with the bomb mm-hmm. that we don't realize he was interested in other things, but he was interested in all kinds of alternative forms of energy. And you know, there's the famous quote from the uh, Mahabharata that, he, mm-hmm. that is attributed to him, you know, um, and he was interested in things ancient and Somewhere scattered throughout things that he said and wrote, and I don't have the sources, but I'm looking into it. Um, he made such things that would lead one to believe that he thought that there may be much more to human history than, you know, the conventional academic model. And uh, some of yeah, the he stuff talks that he talks about was... all that, the Vedas. Like, if you read yeah. this book, American Prometheus, he goes through like all of his Eastern philosophy stuff. Mm-hmm. It's really mm-hmm. good. But you're right. I mean, I've definitely, um, I've been, I, I don't know why, but I was very fascinated with Oppenheimer for a few months there and just read everything I could. Mm-hmm. On him, so. Well, he was a fascinating individual. Yeah, we did a nice said, uh, yeah. episode on that. You guys did an episode on that? Yeah, I uh, we started the series called Paradigm Shifters, where we're going to pick out people okay. where we think they've left a huge impact on civilization mm-hmm. and society. And he's the first person that I picked because, um, okay. yeah, I think it's a huge paradigm shift <clears throat> for war, for energy, for all that kind of stuff. So. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um. So, but you know, it's 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 appropriate that we'd be talking about the atomic bombings and all that because there's actually. You know, the subject we were going to kind of address, I think, was going to be catastrophism. And 
I think we've talked about that before. And, you know, a lot of there's constantly new things being every month, new information is coming to light to quote the, the, uh, the great Lebowski. Um, <laughs> but it's true every month, uh, nice. every few months there's stuff comes out that you go, wow. Okay. So, you know, this whole younger driest boundary question, when it was first proposed, you know, and it was attacked, you know, rigorously by all the pseudo skeptics who just didn't want to accept the fact that, Hey, it wasn't, you know, paleo Indian hunters with loincloths and Birkenstocks wiping out the woolly mammoths. It may have been something from space. They didn't want to go there because the belief was becoming entrenched that, yeah, it was humans, you know, now, never mind. If you look at the, most of the, the models of, uh, you know, human population growth during the late, during the Paleolithic period, which could be the late, also the late Ice Age, if you're looking in, in geological terms, the period, say, like at fifteen to 20,000 years ago, most of the estimates of population that I've seen uh, in, the, in the studies put it between 5 and 10 million people worldwide. I don't necessarily right. know if that's true, but it's, uh, you know, there's one could ask, you know, call that into question for various reasons. But nonetheless, I mean, based on the hard evidence in the fossil record and the the dispersal of, of people and the estimates of population density worldwide and so on, I mean, they've come up with a, a reasonable estimate that may be 10 million people. And I don't, you know, you got to ask several questions when you, you know, when that, when that number is put out, one being, well, we know that there were modern humans that, for all we can tell, were not much different than we today, leaving their little bits and pieces of their skeletal remains behind. They're going back 150 to 200,000 years now. So if we had modern humans, which presume a modern human means, you know, 11, 1200 cubic centimeter cranial capacity, something, you know, that's going to be equivalent to an intelligent brain today, well, then we can assume these people would have been intellectually not necessarily our inferiors. But then here's the question. I mean, how could you go, you, you go for those tens of thousands of years? And what, did the population remain steady? Did it, did it wax and wane? Were there times when the population increased and then crashed? And um, to, I think the answer that we're moving towards is, yeah, I mean, we were um, the planet was in the grip of this ice age and the, and the ice age was not just brought about by some kind of, um, you know, subtle conditions that slowly shifted over, you know, hundreds of millennia and would have given people plenty of time to adapt. I think the record now of, of climate change and environmental change and, and all of that global change, if you want to use a more comprehensive term, shows that the climate for the last couple of million years has been extremely dynamic. I mean, extremely dynamic. And you have to think, well, I, I, it has to be dynamic. If, if you go back 15,000 years ago, which in the geological span, framework is, is just a mere eye blink, um, you think of history, okay, in round numbers, let's say 5,000 years, that's history. If we double history back, we're at the beginnings of uh, the, the, the transition from nomadic to sedentary lifestyles. We're seeing, um, you know, the, the emergence of, of farming, um, 
on a, on a significant scale. We're seeing the dispersal of languages. Um, we're seeing the domestication of animals. We're seeing the first urban complexes. All of this is going down, what, eight to 10,000 years ago, right? So now, of course, this is coming just immediately in the wake of the Great Ice Age. Now, the modern geological epoch called the Holocene is now dated 11,600 years. And what's interesting, there's several things interesting about that. Number one, the, the date of 11,600 for the inception of the Holocene, the modern, the current modern geological epoch, turns out that that's the upper Younger Dryas boundary. You guys now obviously know about the Younger Dryas, right? There's what's the that? lower boundary. The younger, I think I've heard that? about that. I've heard yeah, about the older know. Dryas, but I thought that was Maurice. <laughs> I'm very dry, I'll tell you that. Well, there is a joke that goes along with that, but I won't say it. So, all right. But um, we want to hear it. Well, it save it for the Patreon. Okay, all right. There we go. Well, sometimes the younger dryas gets mispronounced a little bit. So there's the older dry ass and the younger dry ass. Oh my and, lord. <laughs> And it goes from there. But like I said, I'm not going to, we'll leave it at that. But yes, obviously, because we're saying the younger Dryas, there's an implication there that there's an older Dryas, which there is. There's an older Dryas. And then that was followed by two climatic stages called the, um, um, the uh, Balling and the Alarod. So you had older Dryas, Balling, Alarod, younger Dryas, Preboreal. That was the sequence. The transition from Younger Dryas to Preboreal, that was the, the transition from Pleistocene Epoch to Holocene Epoch. Now, the question could naturally be asked, given that the, that the duration of the Pleistocene is now given at, at over two and a half million years, and the duration of the Holocene, uh, the whole recent, is uh, 11,600 years. So is the Holocene really a distinct and separate epoch, or is it just a stage within the Pleistocene? That's an important question, because what characterizes the Pleistocene, say, for example, when contrasted with the previous geological epoch, the Pliocene, is the variability of climate and the oscillation between glacial and interglacial ages, which seem to inflict itself upon this planet roughly around two and a half million years ago. And so how many glacial, interglacial transitions were there? I don't think anybody has got a final number. The problem being is that each transition tends to obscure and erase the evidence of the previous transitions. But that can be teased out of the geological record with careful examination. But here's the point I guess I'm getting at is that when you look at, a, at the transition out of the Ice Age, you have the lower Younger Dryas boundary, which is dated at about roughly 12,850 to 12,900 years ago. I think the, the final date now that, they're, that they've been honing in on is just over 12,850 years ago. Okay, That's the lower Younger Dryas boundary. And what happened there is that for the previous oh, 1,000 or 1,500 years, the climate had been gradually warming out of the depths of the bitter cold of the late glacial maximum, which would have been 17 to 21,000 years ago, say. And, and what an astrologer would think of as the age of Scorpio, the age of death, which you're going to be in if you go back 18,000 years. 
Age of Scorpio, in other words, meaning the vernal equinox at that time was transiting through the constellation of the Scorpion, right? Um, so then it comes up, um, eventually works its way around, and you get to uh, uh, Virgo. And Virgo was that period of relative warmth that uh, would be consistent with the Milankovitch forcing mechanisms. I don't know if you know what that is. I'll explain it very quickly. Milankovitch was a, Malutin Milankovitch, I think, what was he, Yugoslavian? I don't remember. He was a mathematician, and he was the one who first realized that there were three factors affecting the amount of solar radiation that reached the surface of the Earth. It was the shape of the Earth's orbit. Um, it was the tilt of its axis, which varied somewhat, and it was its distance from the sun during perihelion and aphelion. So by looking at those three things, he realized that it could actually induce slowly accumulating changes. Sometimes those changes would cancel each other out. Other times they would amplify each other. So now when we go back to the end of the last ice age, we were in a phase where the um, the, Malon the Milankovitch forces, which is, again, just are very slow. They're going to be slow, accumulative, um, very incremental, you know, something that's taking place over centuries to millennia, right? Well, at the end of the Ice Age, you had this warming during the, the, the Baling Alarod, and that warming was consistent with Milankovitch warming, Okay, which which would have been because of the, the changing Earth-Sun geometry, there would have been a natural, gradual, gentle warming. That's what we see at the end of the last ice age for a couple of thousand years anyway. So now we get down to 12,000, I'm going to call it just round number, 12,900 years ago. Okay, boom, something happens, right? And all of a sudden, literally within almost like an instant, you know, a year, five years certainly, no more than that, maybe even less than a year, the whole 2,000 to 3,000 years of gradually accumulating warmth is erased in an instant. And now you have the return of full glacial cold during the early phase of the Younger Dryas. So now this is the Younger Dryas, lower longer Younger Dryas boundary. This is where a lot of the megafaunal remains cease. In other words, below this thin layer that marks the transition from Pleistocene to Holocene, from, um, you know, from what, from the uh, Baling Alarod into the Younger Dryas has that layer. And that layer um, has a lot of interesting stuff in it. And the first thing that called attention to that layer was, was, was two things. One, the abundant megafaunal remains that were found below that layer and the scarcity of the same megafaunal remains that were found above the layer. Right. The other thing was the presence of uh, evidence of the Clovis culture of human habitation of the north non-glaciated North American continent. So that was the Clovis culture, right? That suddenly appeared, like around thirteen thousand three hundred years ago, thirteen thousand four hundred, and then even quicker disappeared. They came. They were very active. There was yeah. Over I mentioned 50. last time you were yeah. on. I I brought up that new find that they found in uh, Saint Joseph's County, Michigan. Some guy mm -hmm. found a 15,000-year-old Clovis tool, um, which they thought was super crazy because that was supposed to be under ice. So what does that mean? Yeah, what does that mean? And if it is actually dated to 15,000 years ago, that makes it an outlier because most of the Clovis artifacts have been dated at no later than 13,000, 13, 4,000 years ago. 
Yeah, I'll have to go so, back and find that paper, and I'll try and add the link down below after we're done. Okay. Is uh is Maurice the research man? As we're raising questions, he's supposed to be. Work? Yeah, he's supposed to be our young but Jamie, he's, but he, he's more like yeah, old he, uh, old Dryas. <laughs> he's, he's like, okay. Old. Well, <laughs> <laughs> give that man I'm a shot at baby powder over, over here, folks. <laughs> Well, uh, uh, you know, in my Cosmographia podcast, Kyle Allen, he's one of the Snake Brothers. Serpent oh, we brothers know, at Hell's we know Coast. Kyle. Yeah, he's. He, I'm grooming him into my fact checker. There you go. Um, so yeah, he does. He's doing a pretty good job, though. But I oftentimes, Kyle, would you look that up for us? <laughs> Whereas, you, I want, I need somebody in the background who's constantly, you know, everything we say. Okay, blah, 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 fact right. checking that, fact checking that. Um. So, so that upper transition now, so now you've got thir- roughly 1,300 years, right, which actually might be a little bit less than that, which dates it to around 1,290 years ago, right? I mean, the, the duration of the, uh, the, of the Younger Dryas, about 1,290 years. So it's about one-tenth the time from now back to the beginning of the Younger Dryas. So in other words, if you mark from the bottom the, the onset of the Younger Dryas to now, one-tenth of that span of time is the Younger Dryas. Very, you know, very, very close. Um, so then you have the upper boundary. The other thing is the lower boundary does not have one of the CRE events associated with it, uh, but the upper boundary does. Now, do you know what a CRE event is? Actually, C, a CRE. It's, it's redundant to say... Uh, CRE event. CRE means a, a catastrophic rise event. And this is the term for these sudden jumps in sea level that occurred during the glacial meltdown. Catastrophic rise events. And there were two of them that were documented. The earliest first one is dated at 14,500 years ago. And that's called Meltwater Pulse 1A. The mm-hmm. second one is dated at 11,600 years ago. It is called Meltwater Pulse 1B. Now, there's evidence that there's also major meltwater floods that occurred right at the Younger Dryas boundary at, say, 12,900 years. Not enough to where the marine geologists and the oceanographers have, have documented a substantial meltwater pulse at that date, but I think maybe perhaps if we take a closer look, we may find that evidence. It's, see, because here's the problem. You figure sea level during Lake Glacial Maximum is at least 400 feet lower, right? So now you're having this very rapid influx of glacial meltwater into the ocean basins of the world. And so sea level is rising, and it's rising substantially faster than anything we've seen in the last century or two, Right substantially faster. And then within that rise of 400 feet, that's not necessarily a uniform linear process. There are points within that process where it makes jumps, right? Which means that there were melting events. There had to be very rapid melting of the ice sheet. Now, one problem that, that we stumble upon when we start looking at this is that in order for there to be a melting event, in order to convert ice into water, it requires energy. In some form, thermal energy, it has to come from somewhere, right? 
Now we can look at say Greenland and, you know, a lot of concern about Greenland ice mass melting. And, and it's a, it's a much, it's an exaggerated concern because Greenland, Greenland, if you look at the long-term study suggests that it's a whole lot more stable than it's being portrayed in, in the recent media. Look at, consider Antarctica. Now there's between five and 6 million cubic miles of ice piled up on the South Pole, right? Now we don't see melting events, um, where discharges of meltwater are coming off the Antarctic ice sheet that can only be measured in hundreds of millions of cubic feet per second. If we saw something like that, of course, the, uh, you know, the eco-warriors and the environmentalists and all, they would be absolutely going hysterical. We don't see anything like that at all. In fact, it doesn't appear that the mass balance of Antarctic ice sheet is changing much at all. There is some change in that West Antarctic uh peninsula that's coming out, but that's induced by subglacial volcanism, and it doesn't really have anything to do with a warming atmosphere. But overall, the mass of Antarctica is quite stable. We don't see, again, we don't see meltwater. You know, there's seasonal meltwater around the periphery, just like there's seasonal meltwater in Greenland, right? And that, when you measure it by, you know, human day-to-day standards, it sounds like it's a whole, whole lot of water, and it is, but it's, act, you know, fully replenished with each winter's snowfall and the ice builds up. And then of course you're going to have surface melting, right? But here's what I'm getting at. You got a picture in your head and a huge ice sheet, bigger, bigger than the one that now covers the South pole covering half of North America reaches from the Atlantic to the Pacific from the Northern United States up to the Arctic circle. It's up to a mile and a half thick, you know, six, seven, eight, 9,000 feet thick over the central dome, 6 million, roughly 6 million cubic miles of ice. And then you've got another ice sheet over Northwestern Europe that's bigger than the one that now covers Greenland. It's called the Fennoscandian ice sheet. Now, there was a whole lot of ice in the world at that time. Well, according to any standard model, of global change, and especially if you're trying to attribute the existence of the glaciers to these Milankovitch forces, there's no way that you're going to be generating meltwater pulses that are measured in hundreds of millions of cubic feet per second discharging off the ice sheet. Yet we know for a fact that the meltdown of the great Laurentide Cordillera and ice sheet complex covering North America had discharges of meltwater up to that level, maybe even exceeding a billion cubic feet per second. Now, do you know what that means in some kind of terms that you can grasp? Think of this, guys. Think of all your continent. You're not excluding Antarctica. Think of North America, South America, Europe, Asia, Australia. Think of all the great rivers of the world. Just think of North America. What are the great rivers? Obviously, Mississippi and Missouri, the Ohio, the Columbia, the McKenzie, you know, we could go on to Colorado, the Hudson, the Connecticut, you know, all of these rivers. Then you start thinking about the great rivers of South America, the Amazon, the Orinoco, dozens of other great rivers. Think about it, rivers in Africa, right? The Congo, the Nile, go to Europe. You know, you've got the Rhine, the Rhone, you've got the Thames, on and on and on. The, the Yellow River in China. And we're just scratching the surface. You think of every river on earth right? If you take the flow, the the discharge of every single river now flowing on planet Earth, combine them together, 
it wouldn't even be one-tenth of some of the meltwater flows coming off of the Great Laurentide Ice Sheet and Cordilleran Ice Sheets. How do you explain that? Uh-huh. See, I don't... See, that kind of puts it in, in, in some effort to put this thing into perspective. Yeah. And uh, I, I mean, don't I, think that I mean, modern I mean, science has, has figured it out yet. I mean, honestly, I think you do a really good job of breaking this stuff down because um, I don't know how many people out there can actually look at these scientific papers, read them, understand them, and then kind of translate them and convey them to your every man or every woman and um, help them understand uh, the magnitude of what, you know, these shifts were and everything that happened. So, um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's really hard to grasp. Um, I do want to point out though, I was wrong. You were right. Um, even though you'd never heard about it. Uh, it says independent researcher Thomas Talbot and researchers from the University of Michigan have discovered 13,000 year old Clovis campsite in St. Joseph's County, uh, was thought to be the earliest archeological site located in Michigan. Okay. Well, that's good. So, uh, I have been redeemed. My credibility has been restored. I wish Um, I was right, but you're right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't know, Mike. Um, give credit where credit is When I signed up for this gig, man. <laughs> um, um, but yeah, man. I mean, that's that's your that's one thing that I think most archaeologists and geologists and scientists lack is that that ability to connect with people and that ability to translate the data and the science um, in a way that people can understand. I think that's the biggest flaw. Uh, out there right now with social media and technology well yeah and there is barriers i mean the barriers language barriers because you know it it takes some time to learn the lingo i mean you know there's a lot of terms that i just now thoroughly understand if you know you talk about a paleo current indicator what the hell am i talking about if i mention a streamlined erosional residual what the hell am i talking about well there was once upon a time i'm going streamlined erosional residual what the hell are they talking about right Mm. well then I go, you know, I get out my trusty geological dictionary. I see if it's in there. If it's not, I, you know, I, I just, I read stuff. And I, I'm a note taker. I take notes when I'm reading, right? And I'm a highlighter. Um, and I'm constantly looking stuff up, constantly. I don't, so sometimes I'll start and I'll read a scientific paper on some subject that I don't know much about. And I get through it and I go, okay, I might have gotten the gist of that. But boy, there was about 90% of it that was over my head. I will literally read some papers five, six, seven, eight times. And each time I'm okay. And and I've discovered that a lot of it is just learning the terminology that they're using. Oh, okay. I know what he's talking about there. I get that now. So that's a big part of it. And a lot of people get put off by that. I mean, but you know, for anybody who's a a sincere researcher, that's part of the fun to me, you know, is, is, is like learning a new term. Yeah. You know, um, totally. what, what is an orogeny? Don't, don't you think they could add like a little term key on scientific papers? You, you know, know, like some of them do that now. Mark. Do they? The, yes. Yeah, some of them actually do that. And they'll actually put a little box in and they'll, they'll, it'll be like explained in layman's terms. Yeah. I mean, we've right? done episodes I, on philosophy and like there's, you know, people don't know what interlocutor is and different terminology and stuff. So I always add, a whole list before we get into it. We did ah. a super volcano, 
you know, explosivity index and went through all that. So people know, like before we do the episode, right. when I talk about this, this is what I'm talking about kind of a thing. So good. Yeah. That helps people learn. And, and, you know, I mean, a lot of people just, they're not there in that, you know, there's some of us, I think like probably both you guys, myself, most of the circles we travel in and, and associate with, these are people who are, you know, really curious, constantly asking questions, who love to learn new things. Nerds, and just say it. Nerds, nerds. basically nerds. <laughs> nerds, yeah, nerds, exactly. <laughs> uh, I didn't want to, wasn't, you know, I wasn't, I didn't want to say anything that would be offensive to Maurice, so I. <clears throat> I don't know if Maurice is a nerd. He's a little too cool, I think. They call me Poindexter. <laughs> Poindexter. And I often say to people, I'm worth, now don't be a Poindexter. <laughs> Um, stop but, being a Poindexter. But in in terms of like, um, <laughs> in terms of going back to what we were talking about, what you were just explaining, um, how how fast, like roughly time wise, do you think that that all happened? Went from these these large glacial sheets to everything melted like how, how roughly what what like what's the time frame for that 5000 years 5000 years yeah okay. but see within that now that's you're talking right. about endpoints of a continuum these Late little micro maximum, micro things these micro events there were again it was not a linear process it was not a smooth process it was it was a it was a series my take of it now is that there was a series of closely bunched catastrophes and that happened sequentially. And I mentioned Meltwater Pulse 1A that's dated at 14,500 years ago. It looks to me like if that date holds up, and I haven't, been able, I haven't seen anything to question that date, that seems like the very first big Meltwater Pulse. And some of the carvings of the great coolies and canyons and valleys and things um, that were near the great ice sheets occurred at that point. Then there is a clearly well-documented second meltwater pulse at 11,600, which again, we correlated that with the transition from the Pleistocene to the Holocene. If you look up right now, Holocene, I bet you you'll see it'll give the date of 11,600 years. Okay, which uh, is interesting, you know, and here's why. As being a, a, a student of Plato, we talked about Atlantis last time. Well, you know, Plato is very explicit about the destruction of Atlantis, which he attributes to um, a subsidence caused by a, a big earthquake, right? If you read what he, how he explains it, right? Well, he gives that date very precisely as 9,000 years before Solon's journey to Egypt which occurred in 600 BC, give or take a decade or so. Well, so then you do the numbers, do the math. 600 BC is 2,600 years ago. Add that to the 9,000 years prior to that sojourn in Egypt, and you're at 11,600 years. So, interesting. Which puts us at Gobekli Tepe. Which puts us at Gobekli Tepe, which is another interesting wrinkle in this whole emerging paradigm shift that we see going on. Yes. Um, could there be a connection? Absolutely. I would think there could be a connection because I do think that the events that terminated the ice age were global in extent. I mean, regionally they were more severe in some places than others because obviously 
for example, people survived, megafauna survived, where in other places, large swaths of geography were, you know, megafauna and, and, and human were apparently completely erased from certain regions. I mean, post Younger Dryas, there is no Clovis. Clovis are gone. And it's like half a millennia, really, before the Folsom culture starts showing up. Now, they're arguing about the transition between Colson, Colvis, uh, Clovis and Folsom. I don't know. I don't know the resolution of that. But it seems that there's a lot of evidence of at least a multi-century abandonment of large areas of North American geography in the wake of the Younger Dryas event. And then human remains show up again after this hiatus. And What do you think about they're, they're... Darren Kuyu? Because, like, I mean, Turkey's kind of interesting because it does have all these sites. You've got Karahan Tepe, Gobekli Tepe. You've got all these super old sites. And then they're saying Darren Kuyu, this underground um, cave system that housed mm -hmm. twenty, thirty thousand 30,000 people at one point was from, like, the 7th century B.C. Like, why would they have created that? for then versus what we're talking about well um perhaps something going on in the sky yeah that'd be my first thought i know there's a myth was that yima and navara was it zoro zoroastrianism where they mm -hmm. come out and it's like snowing or something like that um i don't know I don't want to jump around too much, but yeah, I, I just, I find these connections interesting because the dating on some of these things, it's like, they're like, oh, we think it's this, but you know, and then when you kind of push back on these timelines, it's like, well, um, you know, that's pseudoscience or whatever, you know, but it, at the same time, yeah. it's, it doesn't make sense. And, you know, from the standpoint of to create something like that underground for 20, 30,000 people, I would assume it would have to be some sort of serious event, right? <clears throat> one would think. Yeah. So. And this is in this one. This is in Turkey. Yeah. yeah. The great. I haven't really looked into that yet, Mike. To the extent where I can give any kind of authoritative opinion on it, I you know I try. And that's not what to I love about you, man. You don't you don't dabble in things you don't know. I know you know what you don't know. That's the most important thing. Well, yeah. I mean, I know a few things that a lot of people don't know, and I'll. You know, I'll brag about that, but you know, this is something that I would actually, that's one of those things that I would love to investigate further. There's just a lot. So I'm, you know, that's why it's great for me to be able to communicate with other people who are investigating and doing research and stuff, because I get to learn a lot of the stuff that, you know, yeah. if now, if I was three people instead of just one, I could probably investigate all of the things that I'm interested in. Yeah, the Father, My problem, the Son, yes, and I, the Holy Spirit, right? Yeah. Amen. I, I am only one guy. You do look like God if we were <laughs> anthropomorphizing him, you know? I, don't... Oh, I, I have been carefully <laughs> cutting my Lord-like countenance. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, uh, the the, the uh, promo that has just gone up for this uh, Halloween uh, Festival of the Dead thing I'm doing on Sunday, which, by the way, I hope you guys can tune in. If not, it's going to get recorded and it, it's going to be available in perpetuity. But it's got Sounds some good. juicy stuff in it. And the headshot that they're using, uh, somebody said that. And I said, no, I think I, it looks more like Orson Welles and his, <laughs> you know, his old age. Yeah, yeah I can um, see, you know, you you actually do the look late, like the later years of, of Orson. You, know? you do. If somebody made a statue of you, I'd be like, that's an old Greek philosopher right there. 
that's a compliment. That's a compliment. Depends if his shirt's off or not, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I'm not as buff as I used to be, so <laughs> uh, if I was, and, I uh, probably would be sitting here without my shirt on, you know. There you but, go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Matt actually just asked, which Meltwater Pulse event is the one that really trashed North America? Ah, what a that's a really good question. Who asked that? Matt, thank you, Matt. Matt, and the answer to Matt is I don't know. I think actually it was a couple of them. I think we had, you know, and you can't get rid of all of that ice without trashing lot large parts of North America. I mean, anything think about this, every river that headed off the margin of the ice sheet, which would be all the rivers um in the northern United States, I mean, if you start going to New England, you know, the Hudson River and the Connecticut River, both were um, occupy troughs that were carved out by glacial meltwater. Same with the Mississippi, same with the Ohio, uh, same with the Missouri's, uh, the Columbia River as well. All of these great river systems, which comprise a lot of the um, watershed and catchment basins of, of northern United States, were carved by huge meltwater discharges. The dating of that is really one of the issues that that, that people are working on right now, Matt, uh, to try to decipher that. And I'm gonna I'm of the mind that the first real massive flooding that we can now see etched into the landscape of North America occurred at fourteen thousand five hundred years ago, coincident with meltwater pulse one eight. Now, if we go to 12,800 years ago, uh, 12,900 years ago at the lower, younger, driest boundary, there's no documented meltwater pulse from studies of the ocean at that date. However, there is new research suggesting that there was gigantic meltwater pulses into the Arctic Ocean. Now, that water ultimately would have ended up in the, in the North Atlantic, no question. But eastern Laurentide ice sheet, that meltwater is going to go discharge directly into the Atlantic. Northern Laurentide is going to discharge into the Arctic. Western Cordilleran ice sheet is going to discharge mostly into the Pacific. But the meltwater discharging south off of the rims of the ice sheet, um, if you're west of the Continental Divide, that meltwater ended up pretty much flowing to the Pacific via what is now the Columbia River Valley. Um, now, when you get into the southern United States, you know, some of the rivers, you have the Arkansas River, the Rio Grande, um, the Colorado River, um, over in the eastern, you know, you have the um, Savannah River and, and, and those rivers. Well, now, you can't see the evidence of catastrophe as spectacularly preserved because the evidence of the catastrophe is a function of how much energy, how much force is being, you know, um, imposed upon the land by the passage of that water. That's going to be a function of how fast the water is moving, primarily. It's, it's a function also of, of total volume, but it, the faster the water is moving, the more erosive it is. So... When you have, like out in the western United States, the Pacific Northwest, like I was just out there last month for a couple of weeks exploring the so-called channel scablands, which, which are some of the most spectacular water-carved features on Earth, right? You have gigantic abandoned cataracts that are many, many times just completely would swallow up Niagara, right? And now they're completely dry. 
But is that where you mel- filmed with uh, Graham? I saw like a picture from. I don't know if it was from the ancient apocalypse or not, but it looked like a picture of you and Graham from the Scablands. Probably was because that's what we did. We see when when Graham was uh, was researching magicians of the gods. We did a spent a couple of weeks traversing from Portland to Minneapolis, and what we did was we generally followed the southern boundary of the ice sheet. So what I was showing Graham was the evidence for these gigantic meltwater pulses that were discharging off the ice sheet. Now, if you come to the mid-continental United States and you're looking at the the headwaters of, say, the Mississippi, you got, what is it, 1,100 miles, something like that, from the margin, 1,000 miles from where the margin of the ice sheet was to the Gulf of Mexico. Now, you go to the Pacific Northwest, eastern Washington, you've got a couple of hundred miles from the uh, margin of the ice sheet to the Pacific. So basically, you think about that, what the implication is, is out in those Pacific Northwestern environments, you've got a much steeper gradient. And so that means the water's moving faster. <clears throat> the total volume may not be any greater, but when you speed that water up, its erosive potential begins to increase exponentially, see? So sometimes even a, a two-foot flash flood could wash away a car if it's moving fast enough, you know. Um, so it's a question of velocity. Now, I think, let me see, let me let me go back to Matt's question. The first meltwater pulse, where did that water come from? That's one of the unresolved questions right now. It presumably came primarily from the North American ice complex. What was the contribution of the Northern European ice complex, the so-called Fennoscandian ice sheet, right? Some terminology. You've got three named ice sheets during that late glacial maximum. Fennoscandian, like as in Scandinavia, Fenno, like like Finland, Fennoscandian. Then you come over to North, that's the European. You come over to North American, you've got the Laurentide, which is the big one that's centered over Hudson Bay, Canada and up to a mile and a half thick. <clears throat> and then when you come over west to the Canadian Rockies, you've got the Cordilleran ice sheet. And you can think of the Cordilleran ice sheet as roughly the size of the ice sheet that now covers Greenland, and, <clears throat> and the Laurentide ice sheet roughly the size of the one that now covers Antarctica. And you take those two ice sheets and you drop them on North America, now you've got the late glacial maximum. So one of the questions, the sticky questions right now, is the is the precise sequence of events that brought us from full glacial maximum, which we know we were at 15,000 years ago, pretty much, to full-on interglacial like we are now, which eight to 9,000 years ago. Now, within there, <clears throat> it appears that what you had was a very rapid melting initially that launched the thing. It slowed down, and then there was a second episode of melting, like the Mackenzie River. If you pull up a like a Google Earth map and you look at the Mackenzie River, it has all of those scabland features that were created by gigantic floods rushing north into the Arctic Ocean. That seems to now be dated to the Younger Dryas boundary. Also, the question of Lake Agassiz, which was a gigantic inland sea of meltwater that literally was so big it would have taken days to sail across, if you could have. You wouldn't have been able to see from one side to the other. <clears throat> and I've begun to question whether that was actually even a lake. Um, and not just a temporary, gigantic p- 
pool of meltwater. Um, but it discharged north into the Antarctic, into the Arctic Ocean, and it apparently discharged south um, <clears throat> at a place called Big Stone Lake, which is um, uh, right on the boundary of Minnesota and South Dakota. And then that fed into and carved what is now the Minnesota River Valley. And that fed into the Mississippi, right? And the Minnesota River Valley was, I've told that story about how when I was a punk 18-year-old in the summer of 1969 at a rock concert out at Flying Cloud Airport on the bluffs overlooking um, the Minnesota River Valley, um, I wandered over, the, the bluffs are a couple of hundred feet high, and I wandered over and was standing there probably zoned out of my mind probably otherwise I might have not even noticed it but I was looking at I'm standing on the bluff down below is the Minnesota River and the Minnesota River had had two embankments on each side three miles across there was another set of bluffs they were like the matching partner of the set of bluffs I was standing on and I just remember looking up and down and looking and then looking at the Minnesota River that had meandered over to my side of this much, much bigger channel. And I just had this impression that stuck with me for years. And it's, it was only eight or 10 years later that I actually started thinking I would, I, I thought back to that impression I had, and it was not a, an impression that I had anything specific other than <clears throat> it was kind of a impression of scale invariance. Um, and now, in fact, you know, maybe just for the heck of it, I will pull up uh, Google Maps and I'll show you that and you'll see what I'm talking about. Now, this is a case of an underfit stream, it's called. An underfit stream or underfit river is where you have a river flowing in a channel that's way too big for the river. Um, let me put on my terrain, my 3D terrain here, uh, and I will show you. And if anybody's interested in hearing more about Randall being zoned out in the 60s and 70s, we've <laughs> talked about psychedelics and stuff in past episodes with them. So go listen to those if you're interested. Mm -hmm. Someday like, I'll yeah. have I'll have full. I really full like to plug away, baby. Someday I will have full disclosure. Yeah, but that's probably not until I know that I'm going to be checking out soon. Then you nobody gotta, you can and hold Graham got accountable. You, you and Graham have to go on Rogan and just just get wild with it. I've heard a few stories, you know, uh, and I'm not going to relate to any of those stories. But yeah, Graham was a young man at once, once upon mm -hmm. a time. Let's see now. How can I? This is a little bit tricky. I'm not used to this software. I mean, this screen sharing software. So let me. See what I can do here. Um, okay, there's Google Maps. Okay, I've got Google Maps up. Uh, okay, and I had it open. Let me see. I guess what I can do is drag it to my other monitor. I think that's how it's going to work. Let's try share. Ah, yes. Are we seeing a map? Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, 
and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Yes. Yes, we are, ah. sir. Excellente. Okay, so right here, I'm going to probably, am I zooming? I don't want to zoom too fast. Here's Flying Cloud Airport, right? Do you see that? Here, I can make this the main thing. Okay, yeah, you should do that. There we go. Right here, Flying Cloud Airport. Take that. And you see there's this gully right over here? Okay, now I was standing right here. <clears throat> this was a, they used to have rock concerts in the, uh, I don't we Saturday, Sunday, I don't remember what day this was, over here at the airport. And the bluff is pretty flat up here, and that's why it's a good place for an airport, because it's got this flat area right here. And the, I was standing right here looking out. And if I zoom out here, you will begin to see that on the other side over here, there's another set of bluffs. Oh, yeah. Yep. And it's flat in here. That's the whole floodplain of the modern Minnesota River. And I'm going to come on over. Let's see. Zoom out a little more. And I will come on over. And we'll just follow. And you can see there's this very large channel. Yeah. And the modern Minnesota River did not create this channel. The modern Minnesota River is simply exploiting what was already there, which makes sense right. because, look, you got 200 feet elevation change between the floor of this channel and the, the top of the upland. Yeah, right? I mean, that river so there once, looks like a little uh, trickle compared to what would have caused that. Yeah, right. Exactly. But it's actually a big major river. Yeah. See? Well, this was actually now geologists have identified that this was a meltwater river. Uh, they call it Glacial River Warren. And you can actually, you can see, you can follow. This is an example, guys, of an underfit river. This is a, some, a new term you can add to your vocabulary to All impress right. your friends. Um, and we can see we're following it. And you can see here, look at this. This is a fossil channel. Um, it was a, <clears throat> It was created by glacial meltwater and of course there is no glacial meltwater anymore look at here you can see channels within channels see and this is all alluvium that forms the floor so i'm going to zoom out hopefully and you can see it makes a big bend here at mankato comes around like this and you can trace i mean the 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 the, the signature of this gigantic flow is very obvious isn't it you right. can't miss it. Well, here's the thing, just to give you a sense of the scale again. Glacial River Warren at peak discharge was 4,000 times greater than the modern Minnesota River that's flowing in the channel. Wow. 4,000 4, times. 
And so if I keep going here, you can you can just follow it. So you can follow the, the, right. the trace of the flood, which is really a cool thing. Yeah. Um, but I'm going to zoom out here, and I'm going to go right up here. There's the Minnesota-South Dakota border. And I'm going to zoom out, and then I'll zoom back in. And let's see, where are we at here? We're now probably Ortonville. Here we go. So right in here, we have a series of lakes and the discharge point. Notice here the name of this, Big Stone City. Mm-hmm. And this is Big Stone Lake. Well, there's a little clue for you right there, Big Stone. And in fact, this was the southern outlet of Glacial Lake Agassiz right here, which was this gigantic lake that reached way up into Canada and was completely submerged, this landscape here, all the way up. And now, you know, when you look at Minnesota, and I'm going to zoom in there. A million lakes. Where did they, Maurice, where did, didn't you go to that? 10,000 lakes. Yeah, 10,000 Lakes Music Festival. Where was that at? Uh, I mean, it was in Minnesota, but... uh... But you don't remember. Those were back. Those were back in my hazy days. I, I, I went. I went up there with this band uh, called Bump, and uh, I went on their tour bus. And again, I was. And you were in doing the back. bumps, apparently. <laughs> I was sitting in the back on a on a cooler. I had no idea where I was or what I was doing. Um, but yeah, no, it's crazy when you look at the map. It, there really is ten thousand. That looks familiar. Hey. Yeah. Well, we're looking at Michigan here, and I just thought I'd show you something. Grand Rapids, the town. Yeah. Oh, if we, we know Grand in, Rapids. Oh, do ya? We're from now, where Michigan. Are you guys well, we're we're from outside Detroit, but I mean, we've been all over the state. Well, check this out. Uh, the Grand River right here is flowing in Grand Valley. Yeah. Well, check this out. Grand Valley, you got an underfit river condition right there. Wow. You can see it very clearly on this map. Yeah, it looks very similar. Oh yeah, absolutely. And look at look at this. Look at this feature right here. Now this would have temporarily been an island within mm. the stream. That is what you would call get this done. Now this is really a term that you can impress your friends with. A streamlined erosional residual. I love yeah, that. Say, term. say that to a Maurice friend still and slap you in the it. face. <laughs> <laughs> say that to <laughs> Um, yeah, there are probably people out there that you would not want to say that to. That's um, what I'm saying. Matt actually wanted to follow up. He said there, uh, so just so he gets it right, based on what you were explaining, there was two major melted events in that 5,000-year period, um, yep. and he said that they were relatively close together, correct? One of them, Meltwater Pulse 1A is at 14,500 years ago. Meltwater Pulse 1B is 11,600. And I'm proposing the possibility of a third meltwater pulse at the at twelve thousand nine hundred. And if I turn out to be right in the long run, then there would have been three meltwater events, three melting events, which then raises the question, of course, that I was getting around to circuitously earlier, which was, what would trigger such melting events? Mm. And I have basically two ideas, and I'm I lean more towards one than the other, but um, we can talk about that. So there's Grand Rapids, Grand, you know, and yeah, we got to get you I, up in Michigan doing some because I mean I love Michigan, but there's some interesting stuff. There's 
They're oh, finding yeah. underwater stone sites in the Heron Straits up there at the top. Yeah. They, they're finding, uh, I told you there's that um, underwater uh, stone um, site in Traverse Bay where there's a mastodon carved into one of the uh, stones. Yeah, and check this out. Now, I'm going to zoom in on Upper Michigan right here around this little town of Ellsworth where my mar where my uh, cursor is. And I'm going to zoom in and watch carefully what emerges out of the blurred. Look at that. That's a drumlin swarm. Wow. Now, you know what a drumlin swarm is? You know what drumlins are? They're controversial, but... I think John Shaw, one of the great geologists who passed away about, what was it, five or six years ago, um, expert on drumlins. He did work on some of the spectacular drumlin fields around the earth, around North America primarily. And it's they're always associated with glaciers because everywhere there were drumlins, there were glaciers. But they've been arguing what causes the formation of these unique landscapes. Let me see. Let me pull out, and I'll show you one of the really spectacular, one of the most spectacular There's some awesome sites, man. You should look into this uh, other. There's Beaver Island. There's like a stone circle thing on Beaver Island that Northern Michigan University has been going studying for a while. Um, what was the – there's Beaver Island. There's Drummond Island. There's a lot of cool places off the coast of Michigan. Yeah, I, I know. that, and, and, you know, there's even stuff being found, you know, under the surface of the Great Lakes. Absolutely. Um, but Absolutely. you know those those things I think would would of course all been post glacial. I don't think any of those were, um, you know, prior to the end of the ice age because the if they weren't destroyed by the ice, they would have been destroyed by by the meltwater, which pretty much submerged very large areas of the non glaciated North American continent. I'm going over here near Rochester, New York, by the Finger Lakes. Um, and I'm going to zoom in on this area between the northern end of the Finger Lakes and the southern shoreline of Lake Ontario. And well, we've watch been to what... Rochester on our way to a fish festival. And let me tell you, the woods there, very bizarre. Got Mortal Kombat oh. vibes. You know, like the very straight trees. You can see through them ah. very clearly. Yeah, it was pretty interesting. I, I definitely had a psychedelic experience there. So, um, well. But Rochester's, I, I like the woods there, but yeah, very bizarre. Yeah, this whole landscape is bizarre for multiple reasons, but I'm going to zoom in, and you're going to see what what reveals itself. More drumlins. More drum, spectacular drumlins. And what characterizes drumlins is this inverted boat hull sort of geometry, and they tend to be, we zoom in here, they tend to be more pointed on the upstream end and blunter on the downstream end. And look, right here, look what do you see right here? You see uh, an underfit river. And notice how the channel of that underfit river is truncating the tips of these drumlins right here. You see that? So what that tells us is that the drumlins were first and then this meltwater channel was second. So the drumlins, what Shaw's idea was, and I think he was right, is the drumlins are formed um, by massive subglacial water flows. In other words, water flowing on the bottom of the glaciers. The problem with people accepting that theory 
was that the volumes of the drumlin swarms themselves are so vast on such a grand scale that the water volumes involved in their creation had to have been extraordinary and nobody has been wanting to go there so his his ideas haven't gained uh, acceptance within the mainstream geological community only because the sources of such great uh, huge meltwater um, would just beyond the paradigm you know was outside the paradigm I think he was totally right, though. I mean, I think that there's a lot of evidence. I've I've been to many of these drumlin fields. I've been to this one. I've been to drumlin fields up in Canada. I've been out in the field. My 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 uh, colleague Bradley Young and I have been out. Um, we spent what four days with um, Jerome Lesman, who we've had twice on our podcast, uh, learning about drumlins. He's he was a graduate student under John Shaw and 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 co-authored a paper with him in 1999. Um, that was entitled uh, Channel Scabland Back to Bretts. And I, we can circle back to what he's talking about there in the title of that paper. But, now, so are you Jerome in contact is, with um, any academics or any any geologists or anything that um, you're friendly with, but maybe they disagree in, in, you know, on any of these things? Or um, are you just so well-researched that a lot of these people don't even know what the hell you're talking about? Uh, well, Jerome, I mean, certainly Jerome is, he's a, he's a professor of geology at Vancouver Islands University, and he's one of the tops in his field. I mean, I think he's probably one of the foremost geologists on the world in the world that have studied drumlins. So, you know, we've had him on the podcast twice. Bradley and I spent four days out in the field with him, uh, researching drumlins firsthand, um, up in British Columbia. And, uh, you know, I'm convinced that, yeah, they're, they're produced by subglacial water flows. So you got a picture when a, when a, a glacier comes across the landscape, it pulverizes the bedrock and the ground beneath it and churns it up into what's called glacial till. And just think of that pulverized rock, which it can be hundreds of feet thick below the glacier, right? Well, this is what's created by the glacier itself. And there's no real structure to it. One of the, 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 defining characteristics of a glacier deposit is this lack of structure, no bedding. Um, whereas water deposits will have structure. They will display, you know, bedding planes, they will have layering and that kind of stuff. Um, and so if, if a deposit has structure, it's going to be alluvial, um, or, or fluvial in origin, meaning flowing water. If there's absolutely no structure, it's going to be glacial till, um, which has not been in any way sorted or shaped by flowing water. However, drumlins are clearly, in my mind, streamlined. They're formed by flowing water, exactly what you would expect. And the geometry of drumlins is very aerodynamic. In other words, if you design a ship, the hull of a ship is designed to minimize friction passing through the water to, to, to as little as possible, right? Obviously, and you can think about it, you don't want to have a, 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 a prow of a ship being square and blunt. How would that be aerodynamically to try to move through the water? Well, water flowing is going to carve and shape things in its obstruction, in its pathway, to be the to provide the least aerodynamic resistance to the water flow. And that's yeah, exactly what me we of like see here. Looking at the surf, you know, at the ocean or whatever, 
and like mm-hmm. little pebbles or rocks just sitting up causing that friction that you're talking about and the water sucking everything else back that's kind of what that reminds me of yeah and you so here you can as i'm scanning over you can see how massive this drumlin field is and the other cool thing about this is you can see that the drumlins themselves have a long axis right they're typically going to be three to four up to ten times as long as they are wide and i think that this that the creation of drumlins is a two-step process the first thing is that the glaciers have to come in there and pulverize the bedrock then the water flows shape that pulverized chaotic bedrock um, into these fluviodynamic forms that you see here except that the fact is that they're flowing under the glaciers there's not a free surface so what that does is it amplifies the pressure of the water and that's key to the shaping of the of the the till into these streamlined forms is that the water because if you remove the lid that keeps it under pressure then what it's going to do it's going to not create these swarms of aerodynamic forms what it's going to do is it's going to become channelized and you're just going to see a succession of channels if i move out here to where like we know that the ice sheet ended let's zoom out a little bit and you go down here to the south end of some of these of the uh finger lakes you've got channels look at see here's a channel this is a meltwater channel here over here you've got another meltwater channel so this is where the water is now discharged from under the ice sheet now at its maximum the ice sheet came down to the southern end of the finger lakes but apparently when the melting happened the ice had receded back and the ice margin is defined by the northern ends of the lakes. Now, here's something else that's interesting. If you zoom in, notice again that there's, I'm going to zoom in here even more. Is that all the same kind of bedrock or stone too? Or no, mostly, yeah. It's it's a lot of shale up in there. So that what area. would happen if that was, a, is that specifically because of the shale? Would that look the same if it was a different type of stone? Oh, yeah, yeah. Because okay. you find the, yeah, the key is, doesn't so much matter the the lithology is as much does the composition of the of the ground mass in in what the glaciers do again whatever the rock tends to be it tends to grind it up and pulverize it that's that's the key you've got this pulverized ground mass below the glaciers it could be tens to hundreds of feet thick and so this is what that water is below the water is this chaotic stuff the ground mass the till above it is the lid of ice so again what that does is it forces the water to move under pressure and it's that pressure that's a key i think to creating these aerodynamic shapes but now what i'm getting at is if you look here you'll see that the lakes are oriented and they're parallel to the orientation of the drumlins if i go over here check this out i'm going to zoom out and if i start drawing lines along the axes of these lakes well they're radial you see that yeah. See over here. Look, look at yep. look at the, like yeah. Look at Lake Oneida. This is uh, let's see what lake is that again? Uh, Onondaga Lake right there, and you come around and you see that they're radial. And you come over here, and if you draw lines along the axes of these lakes, they converge right here in the center of the east. Uh, area of Lake Ontario and there's a basin right there the deepest section of Lake Ontario is right here 
um, the Ontario Basin. It's it's the place where Lake Ontario is the deepest. And if you go from the center line there and draw radial lines out, basically it defines the orientation of the Finger Lakes. Well, the other thing that's interesting is as you move across here, let's see, we can see remnant drumlin over here. Now check this out. Do you see the orientation of these drumlins? You see how they're oriented yeah, they're to the at, northeast? Yeah, yeah, they're at an angle over there. The drumlins are pointing to the same area, which is this area. So the drumlins and the Finger Lakes, I would argue right there, that alone suggests that they're both the consequences of the same event. And I can go over, I showed you where there's other drumlins. I can come over here to, let's say, Wisconsin. Let's zoom in here and... Let's see if we see anything. Check this out. What do you see there, Mike? Drumlins. Drumlins, yes. Bruh. Yes. Look at this. Huge, huge fields of these drumlins. Now, look at there. If we look at these drumlins and follow their orientation, it takes us right up to this trough that is Lake Winnebago and Green Bay. And that was a sort of a secondary meltwater trough coming off what was called the Michigan lobe, which came all the way, you picture a big tongue of ice coming down here, occupying the basin of Lake Michigan. And then you have a meltwater channel coming along its eastern margin right here. It's still under the ice uh, here. And then it spreads out, creates this enormous drumlin swarm and then by the time you get to southern Wisconsin, it's actually discharging off of the ice sheet. It's it's free of this cap, this Why lid. Is, uh, I know Lake Superior is like one of the, the deepest um, mm -hmm. freshwater uh, lakes. I think was it Lake Bacall or something in Russia or something. Is the, de is the deepest it, lake on, on the earth, yes. Yeah. But uh, how did Superior get, was it just because of the glacier that was there before? Was it already kind of set down like that? Or what What, what happened there? Oh, well, uh, let's see. Tell you what we'll do here. Let's just go. I, mean, I wonder if I can sh get over to Google Earth without. Is it changing to Google Earth or am I going to have to stop sharing? No, no, you're good. Oh, cool. Good. Here All we right. go. All right. So I'm going over to Google Earth. I'm, look at this. All right. That, my friend, is extreme scouring. That is exactly what you see over in the Channel Scablands of eastern Washington that were created by gigantic uh, meltwater flows. Uh, okay. And it appears that this area here, okay, what is this called again? This area that connects, um, yeah, that's the, uh, the, UP, a name. the upper peninsula. Yeah. I mean, it's upper, upper Michigan. Um, but this is all, uh, sediment in here. So oh. if, if we were to move that sediment, you would have had a meltwater flow that came down this way, right through the trough, which is now occupied by Lake Michigan. Do the glaciers and, the, and all that have anything to do with the mineral deposits? Because I know the UP is super rich in copper, and it's actually a lot of pure coppers found in different parts of the world from that area. Does that have anything yeah. to do with that, or is that something that's always been the composition well, I of think, that area? Well, I think, okay, so, you know, Sudbury here is one of the largest uh, 
uh, copper mines on the planet and lots of minerals coming out of um, metals and stuff coming out of Sudbury, which is an astroblame. It's an ancient gigantic impact uh, crater at Sudbury. It doesn't show up here. I don't think. That's what I was going to get at. I was wondering how much. Well, actually, it does show up a little bit. This is the impact crater right here. Okay. I'm circling it right here. And then, um, but it's very old. And what I think the glaciers tend to do is to exhume minerals that might have been otherwise, otherwise inaccessible. But, yeah, you can see here there was a. A flow came down right down this way and discharged where Duluth is. We can actually trace. Uh, let me go back to Google Maps. Did this jump us back to Google Maps? Yeah. Yes, sir. Awesome. I like this. Okay, so let me zoom in here. And you'll be able to see. Now that you're getting the eyes to see, Mike, check this out. We can go back out here. It sounds like some and- true detective shit. Some creepy shit. <laughs> There might be a... <laughs> so uh, if I, you had huge meltwater pulses coming down this way, and if I come in here and zoom in on the St. Croix River, check this out. Now, what we're starting to see topographically, look at this. Look at these flow uh, effects. You can see them very clearly, can't you? Oh, yeah. And, and yeah, look at this. You had huge meltwater streams and of course again look at the modern st croix river it's underfit in the same way i mean look at this here you can see one embankment over here you can see a streamlined erosional residual absolutely uh, ser right here you can see how the the water flows uh bifurcated and then flowed back together the the cool term for that is anastomosing Say that a couple of times, Maurice. Anastomosing. That's where you have the branch. Anastomosing. Hmm. Let me hear you say it. Anastomosing. Now say it you three got times it. in a row. There you it is. It. You learn something every day. <laughs> I'm impressed. So anastomosing is when you have this branched pattern where, where the streams will separate and then flow back together again. and And we can see all of that. As we come down here, I mean, look at these amazing landscapes, how the water bifurcate. Look at this, how it, it, it separated in and flowed back together. And probably initially, before the channels were cut, you had a huge uh, uh, like sheet flood moving over the whole land. And then what happens is, is typically you're going to have the water spread out and it won't be that deep, but then it will be exploiting low areas within the terrain weak areas in the terrain and it'll begin to channelize so it'll go from a sheet flood to a channelized flood once it starts creating those channels the bigger they get and the deeper they get the more effective they become at capturing the water flow once they capture that water flow as long as the water keeps flowing they're going to now become it's going to speed up it's going to accelerate the erosion right until the spigots are turned off, the taps are turned off, and the taps are turned off basically when the ice is gone. But you can go down here and you can just look at these amazing forms. At the at the latter stages of the process, these would have been islands. And they would have been, you know, rapid, 
turbid rivers just flowing, choked with icebergs. You got to picture the choking with the icebergs. When I get down here, look at this. Now here's here's the modern river. Look at this embankment over here. So the channel was this wide. That's crazy. And when it, it is crazy. I'm going to come down here to St. Croix Falls. And right here at Interstate Park, yeah, Interstate Park, there was a constriction because right here there's some very dense basalt bedrock. And so what happened was is this water flow, if you can picture it's it's wide and then it gets constricted. Well, when you're talking about fluvial phenomena, flowing water phenomena, thing here's the, the, the interesting thing about it. There is a conservation law that affects the flow of water. So let's say you have a conduit that's a pipe whose diameter is consistent with no change. There's no change in the gradient. So the water flowing through there at any given point, if you measure the water flowing through that pipe, and then the pipe is 100 feet long and 50 feet down, you measure the flow of water again, it's going to be consistent. It's going to be a uniform flow, right? What's going to happen if in the pipe you put a little bend in there and maybe it's 10 degrees of a slope and then it changes to 5 degrees of slope and then it changes to 3 degrees of slope and then it gets uh, steeper again? Well, all of this is going to affect the velocity of flow. Now, also think about what if you change the diameter of the pipe so that it's a three-inch pipe and suddenly it goes to a six-inch pipe. All of these things affect the flow. Now, if you think in nature, you obviously don't have a uniform pipe with consistent gradient and consistent diameter. It's constantly changing. So here's what happens. Let's say you have a constriction with really hard-to-erode bedrock. Like right here at St. Croix Falls, you've got a very dense basalt bedrock, right? So what happens now if the water is spread out, if you do this, if you've got a stream, and let's say it's 20 feet wide, and then you go down, you know, a couple hundred yards and you measure it and it's only 10 feet wide. Well, as long as, you know, you don't have some change in the, in the flow regime because you've got a big flood up coming from upstream or a rainfall or something, but let's say, you know, it's on an average day and you go, and you take two measurements, you know, at the same time, what you're going to discover is where the stream is 20 feet wide is going to have the same amount of water flowing past a given point as the stream that's only 10 feet wide, as long as it's the same stream. Well, what is this telling you? If it's the same volume of water, it means that the, the twice as much water has to be flowing past that point where it's only 10 feet wide instead of 20 feet wide. So what happens is in nature, when water is flowing, if it comes into a constriction, it has to speed up, you see. Then if that constriction opens up and it gets wide, so you, what's called a basin within the... So now the water is spreading out and it's slowing down. Now, when you're talking about water flow, there's two processes that work in tandem, erosion and deposition. You don't have one without the other. If water is eroding and picking up and transporting material from one source, it has to get rid of it somewhere. <clears throat> Ultimately, uh, that would always be the oceans, but oftentimes in the real world, it never makes it to the ocean. But 
let's say the water is moving through a constricted area. Because that constricted area is confined, the water is speeding up because the water is speeding up and it'll, it has to become more erosive. It picks up more material, and then let's say it, it comes clear of the, of the constriction, opens up into a basin. Well, the water slows down. So what happens when the water slows down is it loses its competency to transport sediment. So it begins to deposit that sediment, and of course, the first sediment that gets deposited is going to be the biggest and heaviest sediment. And so now, as you go, so like at the mouth of a constriction, you will have what's called a bar, simply a bar, right? Um, it, it sort of, it could be a delta, like a delta is going to be a deposition of material that takes place underwater. And it creates a fan-like structure, right? The city of New Orleans is built on a delta that was built by uh, meltwater coming down the Mississippi. Okay, so you've got this delta. Now, if you go and you do a transect from upstream to downstream end of this delta, what you'll discover is that there is a grading that's going on in terms of the sediment size. So on the upcurrent, the sediment is going to be larger. And as you move towards the terminal, the terminus of the bar on the downstream end, the sediment gets successively finer and finer and finer, right? So if you look at a section of one of these deposits and you see this very distinct size sorting, well, that is a paleo current indicator because it'll tell you which way the flood or the water was flowing. Now, in a modern creek or a river, we know because we can just simply observe the direction of flow. But when we're looking at paleo hydrology and we're trying to reconstruct ancient events, ancient water flows, we don't necessarily know which way that we can surmise based upon topography and all of that, but there's a lot of variables there. So if you're trying to trace an ancient water flow, you use a variety of these paleocurrent indicators to tell you which way the water was moving. Now, if we go back here to St. Croix Falls, if I zoom in, there is right on this outcrop right here. Let's see, let's go down here. I'm going to jump over to Google Earth. We might actually be able to see the giant potholes. There are a series of these gigantic potholes. Uh, look there, they named a town after me. That's the <laughs> town of Randall. You know, I, I have oh. never been to the town of Randall. I guess really? I should go there. Stand, stand in the in middle front, of the yeah. town. <laughs> stand. I was going to say, stand in front uh, of the well, sign and have somebody take a picture. Yeah. Well, yeah, you know what? I should do that. Let me see. Let me go back here. Where where am I? I'm getting lost here. Where are we here? Okay, so let me go back over to, well, first of all, I'll, I'll just go to this. There we go. So I'm in still Google Maps, so I can't get 3D. But Interstate Park, if I zoom in, Taylor's Falls Canoe, let's see, where is it? There is a series of these gigantic potholes. Um, you know what a pothole is? It's a hole that's drilled into uh, the bedrock. Ah, there we go. Look at here. Glacial potholes, historical marker. Okay, so let's see. Can we see the potholes? Eh, they're not showing up that good. They're all they're all. I can in see here. what you're talking about, though. I can see those little circular divots. Yeah, so let's see. I bet you if I click here, we might actually... 
Did did it bring up the pictures? Yeah. Looks like it did, didn't it? Yep. Good. Okay. It looks let's like see. a little quarry or something like that. Yeah, it's actually it is well it was quarried by nature. And this is these are what, sixty, seventy foot high cliffs right here. This is basalt. Uh this is actually looking across at the Wisconsin side. Let me see if we've got We actually found this really, really sick here uh, diving quarry in um where was that, Maurice? It was in the UP. I think it was Black River Campgrounds, maybe somewhere around there. Um, and uh, it was crystal blue water, and it was super deep, though. It looked like it was shallow. It wasn't, and it was this white, ah. beautiful rock. It, it was amazing. It was a great sight. Yeah, sweet. Yeah, check out this picture. Now, this picture, you're standing down. I didn't take this one, but I have taken pictures from this exact vantage point. In fact, I've got one where I'm down in the bottom of the pothole and Graham Hancock is peering over the rim. That looks like the but, thing from Batman that he has to good. climb out of. <laughs> well, it is. I mean, Where's Bane? This, is, this is a vertical shaft here. And there are potholes in the surface of this bedrock shelf that are up to 20 feet wide and 80 feet deep if you were to clear out all of the sediment that's accumulated in them. Now, how do these form? Well, these form because... When you have extremely turbulent water masses, just like when you have extremely turbulent air masses, it creates vortices that ultimately become tornadoes, right? This is what we got here is Colking. This is underwater tornadoes. They're a function of deep, swiftly moving, highly turbulent water. And you get these underwater tornadoes that can literally drill right through the hardest bedrock in a very, very short period of time, right? I mean, what would be, That's like, an you... example of that, like, we go canoeing a lot. Would that be, like, when you see those little, like, whirlpool things, but, like, on a super large level or something like that? Yes, yes. Mm. You got that? That Yes, that's exactly right, Mike. That's exactly right. Wow. So, so yeah, there's a... good uh, fishing hole is what they call it. A what? What good fishing it? hole. Oh, good fishing I'm, hole. I'm just, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm just looking to see if there's any more pictures. Okay, like, here's, like, like that one, baby. Here, here's another one, and this one has some stagnant water in it. But you can see here, this is it's rounded, and this there's there's a collection of these huge potholes along this shelf of this basalt. And if we go back to the map. Uh, let me go back to the terrain view, get that out of the way, zoom out. Essentially what you had right here, you see this where Taylor's Falls is, that's a constriction. And so all of this water that was occupying the wide channel up here, all got like almost like a, a Venturi flume, got forced through this bedrock constriction right here. And as it emerged from that constriction, you got a picture that this water had incredible like just like you said imagine those swirling eddies you've seen in flowing water it's what you had here times ten thousand times a hundred thousand right wow so you've got a whole series of these colking underwater tornadoes whirlpools forming right here where this water is gushing out and you can see right here where it gushed out and begin to spread out you see an embankment here and then check this out right over here this is incipient cataract formation so this is like a legacy of the of the overland flows because what's happening is the water is pouring over 
picture that the friction of that rock is just literally plucking boulders off of the cliff. And as the shear forces of this forceful water pouring over this edge, it's it's pulling the material off. It's plucking the boulders and the rocks off of the cliff face. As a consequence, the cliff face migrates upstream. And so what you get, it's called a recessional cataract. This And this is a cataract formation right here. If the overland flows had continued, this cliff right here would have continued to migrate upstream. But a lot of these features are just basically at whatever the status of erosion and deposition was at, when the final gasp of these great meltwater floods ended, that was the landscape that got left. And 10 or 12,000 years of subsequent environmental and geomorphic effects has done very little to these gigantic landforms that were created at the end of the last ice age. So then that water flowed down here and ultimately flowed into the Mississippi right here. And you can see over here, the Mississippi looks like a little trickle here comes down. And you can see the Mississippi flows into the channel of the Minnesota River. And that's that same river that we looked at. You can see there's the modern river flowing in the big channel. That big channel comes up here. Wide, widens up. Look at how wide it is right here. That's crazy. Right? And that, I know. And that's all meltwater. <clears throat> we zoom back out. Here comes the St. Croix. It meets. I mean, we see then, that too. A lot of this stuff on a smaller scale, but when we go canoeing on like um, the Manistee River and the Pine River and Michigan and yeah. all those rivers, you you have those yeah. those banks that are just they're so high. We climb up them; they're just pure sand, yeah. uh, and you can see where all that stuff was carved out. The dunes, how, yeah, and how high they were. Yeah, and see that's um, those are all relics. Those are features that were created during all of these catastrophic changes that occurred. If we go down here, I'm going down here to Prairie du Chêne, where um, Mississippi meets the Wisconsin River. And I can zoom in here. And you can see, look at the Wisconsin River. Same condition, isn't it? See how it's underfit? Wow, yeah. Yeah, look at this. Look how intense, too, the, the topography is once you get right beyond those lines, too. Yeah. Yeah, so the the, the pre-existing topography was essentially erased. Yeah, that's, that's what crazy. you got to realize here. It is crazy, but it's real. It's right there, and and uh, it's undeniable once you once you understand the, the 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 grammar here of this. And that's one of the things that I'm trying to do is I'm trying to teach people how to read this script that's engraved into the surface of the earth, and it's it's literally a script that tells this epic story of global change on a scale that's almost unimaginable. And this story has been there engraved into the surface of the earth, too big for humans to even perceive it until the last generation or two. And now this epic tale is revealing itself to the to human eyes, to the human mind for the first time in 12,000 years. And we can go back thing, up. my friend. Damn. And what? It's exciting it's like stuff. It's a beautiful isn't thing, it? my friend. Yeah. Oh yeah, it is. It it's it's really it's game changing in so many ways. Um, 
right up here at the Wisconsin Dells, this was another catastrophic outlet right in here. And the water that came through here, let's see, I bet you we can pull some pictures up right here of the Wisconsin Dells. No, that's back at the, let me just click on, eh, didn't mean to get back over there. Let me pull back up, go over here to the Wisconsin Dells, uh, Right here. You know what? Can we pause real quick? I'm just going to read this ad. I'm just going to pause. We're going to absolutely. We're going to do it live, yeah. but I'm just going to pause what we're doing real quick uh, <clears throat> while I read this thing here. Sure, go ahead, man. All right. Um. All right. If you're looking for an ex excellent puff. <laughs> I just messed that up live, but I don't care. If you're looking for an excellent philosophy podcast, here's the show for you. The Partially Examined Life is a philosophical podcast by four guys who are at one point set on doing philosophy for a living. For each episode, they pick a text and chat about it with some balance between insight and flippancy. You don't have to know any philosophy or even read the text they're discussing or talking about to follow and enjoy. With a 13-year-plus catalog of episodes, The Partially Examined Life has probably covered any philosophical topic you're interested in, from practical ethics to theoretical foundations of science. Uh, they go deep in the history of philosophy while making it personal and funny. Join the over 45 million downloads already pondering uh, The Partially Examined Life. Find new episodes wherever you stream your podcast or go to partiallyexaminedlife.com. Thank you. Beautiful. Right. And we're back. That brought tears to my eyes, Mike. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that fum that that early fumble really got me off to a terrible start. But that's the first that's the first ad we've ever done. Uh shout out to Partially Examined Life. We're doing a swap ad, uh, ad swap, so uh, I actually have listened to some of their episodes. It's really really good if you like philosophy i'm a big philosophy nerd so um, yeah it sounded it interesting i i hadn't heard of it but it sounds interesting you'll have to give me a, a link before there you go all right here all right I, you see let's pull it back oh, up let's get okay. it back going all right when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, so Maurice is just on the screen. How do we get Maurice off? Get off there, Maurice. <laughs> All right, this is what's called a uh, a pedestal rock, and this is created by. This is not some gradualistic process. This is created by catastrophic flows that carved out the so-called Wisconsin Dells, and. Basically, what you had here is this is a function of how deep the water was flowing through here. You'll notice that there's this extended, this overhang over here on the right cliff. And then it's as if this pinnacle rock is wearing a hat. It's like a pedestal. Well, 
what happened was at one point the water flowing through here came up to the bottom of these overhangs. And so this is thing that this can be used to determine high water marks. Now, early in the process, the water was probably up here. But like, remember, I explained the channelization process. Once it got channelized through here, and these are mostly sandstones, it probably stabilized right here at this level. And so then obviously, if it's not flowing up here, it's not eroding this cap rock as much as it's eroding the rock below it. Now, if the floodwaters had continued for any length of time, and I'm going to just off the top of my head guess anywhere from three or four days up to another week or two, this pedestal rock would, wouldn't have been there. It would have been gone. Again, it's a relic of the status of erosion at the time the water flows ceased, right? Let's see what else we can find here. I want you to pull um, up something in a minute, too, because there's a, something sure. that, that reminds me. It's called Turnip Rock in Michigan. Uh, it's okay. Like, for, it's, what are those Port called? Austin. Yeah, Port Austin. It's uh, Picture Rocks or something like that. Um, okay. But it's, it's got that vibe that we're looking at right now. That's Okay, we'll do that. Yeah. yeah. Look at this. Now, This is these are the sandstones, and these have been carved by these catastrophic meltwater floods. And I'm going to go back to the map here, and you can see up here, this was a huge meltwater pool that that ponded up here, and it flowed down, carving this landscape that we see here. And check this out. You can see where the water flowed this way, and then over here, where is Devil's Lake? Here it is. Okay. So Devil's Lake State Park was one of the outlet flows. And you can very clearly look at that it's Halloween channel. Time. Devil's Lake, yeah. And and you can see where the water flow came this way. It it did a sharp bend to the east, and then it came down this way, and it met the flow that was coming over this. Now, speaking this of Devil's the, Lake. Come join Randall Sunday night as he talks about the Day of the Dead. You can find oh, it yeah. on his website. So the link is L down below. Listen, guys, this this is some really interesting stuff when we start talking about the ancient festival of the dead. And it's the precursor to our Halloween. And it ties in actually with all of the stuff we've been talking about tonight. And I'm going to show those connections in the Sunday night uh, live stream. And we're gonna, It's going to go at least two hours, two, two and a half hours, and then we'll have like 30 minutes for question and answer. And then the whole thing will be recorded. So, you know, it's charging 18 bucks, which I think is very reasonable because that's like the cost of a movie ticket. 18 but, bucks you know, for knowledge? Come on. I mean, you can go, Yeah, you can, you can pay more <laughs> getting a, a meal at a fast food place when you can have all that knowledge that's right. without that's the, right. the shit in your belly. And the thing is, you buy yeah. the ticket, you've got access to it for forever. You can download it and it'll be available um and you know if you've got get together with some friends i mean what is you get together with three or four friends and everybody puts in like three or four bucks come on you know um and the reason Boy. i'm doing that I, I i've been told hey it's worth a lot more than that but my goal here is to get this information out to as broad an audience as possible so if you're you know, you're in high school and you're, you know, working at a, you know, a $750 an hour job or something like that. 
and you're interested in this kind of stuff, I want I want this to be available to you. I don't want to charge 40 or 50 bucks for it. And get together with some buddies or friends and, uh, you know, pitch in a few bucks each, you know, or, or I'm going to try to keep it pretty much family friendly. Um, so I already got some friends that they're planning to watch it as a family because their Sounds kids good. love Halloween. No, it's a perfect yeah. thing, man. I mean, you've, you've got that following too. It reminds me of what we do for like fish and dead shows. We, you know, they have couch tour where you can watch the show in, in HD from your house if you don't want to go to the show. Uh, same uh-huh. kind of vibe. I, totally worth it too. Yeah. Okay. I think so. I think so. I mean, yeah. What can I say? So, and, and the money that we raise from this is actually going into trying to get access to more information. I mean, basically, I have a day job, which I'm, I'm sort of segueing out of, actually, but it pays my bills. And, you know, behind me, I've got a studio that I've built that's allowing me to upgrade everything. The, the dissemination of information that we're attempting to do has been upgraded massively by the creation of this studio. And I've got a game plan I'm laying out. And so anybody who's interested, you know, one of the things that we may have talked about this, you know, I've been looking at the like the history of education in the world. And I'm very much interested in establishing an academy, a school, whatever you want to call it. The two things I've done in my life to earn a, my keep is I've been a builder and a teacher. A modern day uh, Milesian school? Something like that, Yes influence from the platonic academy the schools of pythagoras some of the the meetings in the groves oh we Um, know what's going on bro we know what kind of pythagorean stuff you've got in in mind you don't have you know mm -hmm. i know where this is going god (laughs) going going where where i'm thinking more about pythagorean geometry (laughs) i'm joking yeah we know about your ascetic cult don't worry about it bro oh really going off his rocker yeah well, I've thought about that. I've thought about maybe starting my own cult, but nah, I don't know. That would be no, kind of boring. I, no, I, I would join, bro, so don't worry about it. Would you really? I would. No. <laughs> I, I don't know. Trust you. Somebody, uh, people have said that, you know, oh, you're just a member of Randall Carlson's cult. And I go, well, this is a cult like on others because- I've never heard I a cult think... leader say, I don't know this or I don't know that, so I think you're already off. Yeah, and you've never stuff. heard an occult leader says, you know, think for yourself- Hey, I might be full of shit, but I'm probably not. But, you know, everything I say. I'm interested, bro. I I like what you're doing with the education thing. You mentioned this last time. We talked about it for a little bit, uh, what you're trying to do. And I think it's great. I think that, you know, when it comes to stuff like this, you're not going to learn this in school unless you're going to get your geology degree or something like that. So, Oh, hell um, no, yeah. I I think to have like a – like have a tenuous grasp on how – the earth that we live on was formed and reformed and terraformed and whatever. I think that yeah. it's important to, to know. I, I mean, I, yeah, I don't know. It, it, and how it affected the rise and fall of civilizations, you know, and that opens the door to something that, you know, is the other thing that I think we're all keenly interested in is, you know, realizing that the, the evidence is pointing really strongly to there being a much more complicated history of human civilization on this planet than mainstream academia has recognized up to this point. And I think it, for years, they've been kind of sweeping this anomalous evidence, these outliers under the rug, but there's so much stuff now under the rug that there's no more room. So everything's spilling mm-hmm. out and they're not going to be able to avoid going... Yeah, you know what? There really is 
a perhaps an alternate history here. And it's not just some weird fringe new ager or nutcases that are looking at and, and, and opening this up as a possibility because it really, again, what we talked about earlier, you know, I mean, <clears throat> how long modern humans have been on this planet and we can assume that for 150,000 years. Two, yeah. Well, I mean, they, yeah. there's, there's even some evidence that could go back to like almost four. So there's some cave, uh, findings recently. I think Kazem Cave in Israel and a couple other places. Yeah. And, 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 you know, I've done enough traveling and research, and I'm sure you guys have too, to, to suggest that there is evidence that they were, you know, I'm a builder. So I've, I've had experience, you know, moving heavy weights and, you know, moving beams and moving stones. And, and, you know, when I go, wait a second, wait, time out here. You're telling me that you've got, a, a, a society, a, a group of people, a tribe of people that are generally hunter-gatherers, nomadic, or they're subsistence farmers, but somehow they find the the, the means to organize uh, immense uh, pools of labor, uh, astronomical knowledge, engineering knowledge, and feed armies of workers to build these temples and these pyramids and these monuments and regularly all over the world moving 50 ton and 100 ton stones and up and come on this isn't just, it, this is not adding up don't tell me that oh this is just in their spare time some nomadic you know hunter gatherers are building pyramids or building temples and carving you know moving 100 ton stones it well, just yeah, that's doesn't the argument, make right? sense like I, I know the the slave thing's been out of the equation for a while, and actually I think it was the Greeks that kind of perpetuated that. But um, the what's that? The the mainstream theory now is that they were um, uh, they were farmers, and during the rainy season or the wet season along the Nile, when it would flood, they would go and contribute. So they were like people that were either masons or handy or whatever and that they would go there but then you have graham hancock who's pointed out the amount of people needed to complete these tasks weren't even there wasn't even that many people living in that area at that time so right yeah it's kind of a connection and, right and you see the same phenomenon all over the place yeah uh, and, and it just doesn't make sense and i don't care to, to challenge it and say it doesn't make sense doesn't make you some pseudo-scientific fringe new age crackpot i'm sorry well, here's the good thing we're Does... not we're not scientists so we can question things and, and talk about whatever you know like that's the thing is is i i do think that in some on some level some of these academics and scientists i think they're jealous i think they're jealous that they can't step outside of what they're doing on this like this micro progression of um you know discovery or whatever and it's always going towards something material or something that has to do with you know you know what's going on in the world and society right now as opposed to the stuff we talk about which is the more important stuff where do where do we come from where did this all begin why did it you know uh happen you know you don't ever hear i know that there's different you know there's anthropology and different fields that would look at this but i don't ever hear the archaeologists really talk about like the pantheon of gods and like why they were important and how they played into um the ideas of metaphysics and why people were building these structures and correlating them to the stars and correlating yeah. them to, you know, right. the anatomy and whatever. So, yeah, it, it, I'm sorry. It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. I'm, you know, nobody pays me to do science, but I've been studying science for decades. And, um, 
that doesn't mean that my integration of knowledge and thinking about these things is any less viable or credible than somebody who happens to get paid. In fact, one of the things that my critiques of science is that it, it <clears throat> easily slips into over-specialization. And in particular in the geological realm, you will have a geologist, let's say, does his, his or her PhD on one outcrop and spends five years on that one outcrop. Well, you want to learn about that outcrop, yeah, you could definitely read their thesis or their dissertation and you can find out the, 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 the culmination of five years of work on that outcrop. Does that necessarily qualify them to have uh, a, a, a coherent grasp of the big picture? Not necessarily. <clears throat> See, and it's just, it's like that. You have, you got a hundred archaeologists working on Clovis sites around North America. Well, what needs to happen is how do we integrate those Clovis sites into a coherent pattern of population over, right. you know, during uh, Paleolithic occupation of North America? Well, that's the kind of thing that has to follow. And oftentimes that falls in the hands of the more than non-specialist. <clears throat> and right now, what science is really, really good at is basically accumulating data with the technologies we have now, both that can can see things on the macro scale and the micro scale that's beyond the limits of, you know, what the human scale. Well, we're getting reams and reams of data about things, far more than the analysis and integration of that data into coherent understanding you see so well, you this hit it the nail what... on the head i mean that's also that's why we need philosophy because science is really good at explaining how things work or how they got there they're not ex good at explaining why or do they even try to explain why so um, yeah that's why it's important what you're doing because you do inject philosophy into it which is kind of what you don't see that um, among academics. And actually, to what you're saying with the the over-specialization, I actually really agree with that too. I remember I was going back and forth with the geologist on Reddit, and I brought up um, this cave in Chiquahite, Mexico, that had supposedly two, 300 um, stone tools that were found that date back to uh, 30,000 years ago. Uh, which would push the timeline, <laughs> you know, obviously it's double uh, the distance of Clovis. So um, he had never even heard of it. So, I mean, what does that, you know, like, what does that say? Like if you're in that field studying, he, that was his specialization. He didn't even know about mm -hmm. it too. So mm -hmm. I don't know. Crazy. Well, yeah, see what, what there is now is the cult of the expert. And there are people who are experts, bona fide experts, you know, um, and you want to learn as much as you can from the experts. But there's also this, particularly with the whole thing, you know, where, you know, because I come at, like, I'm very critical of the whole climate change consensus, right? And what you often hear from mainstream media is, well, the experts have said this, or the experts have said that. And then I, my first thing in my mind is, well, who are these experts? You know, somebody will come They're on. just a, other people and, with cognitive biases. <laughs> a lot of them, yes. And, <laughs> and people will come on some of the, some of the, uh, comment and chat boards and stuff talking about, you know, something I was said and, well, why would I believe Randall? I'm going to believe the experts, right? Okay. Well, um, what experts would that be? Are you talking about the are expert we talking about that, ex uh, Randall dismantled on Joe Rogan? The, he's like, yeah, actually I agree with you. <laughs> like half the stuff he was agreeing with you on. 
<laughs> well, yeah. Well, see, and and listen, I I think there's a place for skeptics. You got to have it because there's a lot of bullshit out there, and you need skepticism. My problem is when the skepticism becomes sort of politicized, and you know. Listen, I, I, I liked, I met Michael Shermer, you know, I hung out with him afterwards and I liked the guy, you know, I didn't meet Mark DeFant personally. I'm sure I'd get along just fine with him. Um, you know, and, and, and if I had questions about volcanology, he'd be a guy I'd talk to, you know, that doesn't make him an expert in paleohydrology though. So his problem was he came on, I suppose, thinking just because there are a lot of these a lot of these fringe characters out there that, you know, when you really try to get down to what they're saying, it it just doesn't add up. No, I love the fringe, but you're right. There is, yeah, <laughs> there's a decent amount of people that like, did you even, how did you write that book? Cause yes. <laughs> like, yeah. Like what you're saying now, like I, I just, and I, I hate to say, it cause I love, I love the fringe categories and topics, but there is so much stuff, whether it be the, the alternative archeology span stuff or, you know, UFOs, UAP, we're, you brought up Bigfoot. Like there's, there's legitimate people that are studying these things that do have a level head on their shoulders that are actually doing the mm-hmm, research. Mm-hmm. And then you have the people where it's like, yeah, I think I'm good on that information. So. Yeah. And, and I felt people were too hard on professor DeFant um, because I think he came on there assuming he was going to get somebody and and listen, I have the same thing. When people start spouting opinions at me, and I, it's apparent that they haven't put in the time, they haven't done their homework, they haven't done their research, it's like I start, you know, I I start getting a little bit uh, annoyed, you know, and I want to kind of put them in their place and say, look, you started, you read a book uh, two years ago, and you've read three or four books since then, and now you think you've got it figured out, and you've got opinions, and look. I'm still got more questions than I do answers. And I've been studying this shit for almost a half a century. Right. So I, I, I keep thinking oftentimes I'm reminded back of the, 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 the end of the first Indiana Jones movie. Remember when the government got a hold of the, of the Ark, and, oh, yeah. and, um, and, uh, and, and Indiana Jones was like, what have you done with this thing? Well, we're going to study it. Well, who's going to study now? Cause he knows, there's nobody on earth that knows more about this subject than him. They lock right? in a box and throw it in the, the warehouse. Yeah, and he's yeah, and he says he says, yeah. Well, who's gonna study it? And the, and the government agent says, Oh, top men. We've got top men on it. And Indiana Jones says, Well, what top men? You know, because he knows all the top men, right? So he knows mm-hmm. they're just he's just bullshit, you know, and then that's followed by the top men. They're taking the the crate and putting it in this massive warehouse where it's going to get lost. But I often think of that, you know, um, we're going to, why should I listen to what Randall Carlson has to say about these floods? I'm going to listen to the experts and I'm going, well, what experts? I probably met every expert and I have, I mean, there's a few of the, yeah. I mean, I've been out in the field with over a dozen of these guys, you know, Um, I've read all their papers. I've read PhD theses that you can only, you know, back in the day, you when you couldn't even get them online, you had to travel across the country and go to the college, the university they graduated from, and get a copy of their PhD. That's another problem, right? Is access to these papers. I know a lot yeah. of these sites you have to pay to even 
get a, there's a few there's PubMed, you know there's a few out there that you can access without uh paying but yeah i mean yeah and and google google scholar is getting better and better they're they're posting a lot of stuff that you couldn't get uh before you know so that's a good tool i recommend to people um the other one is um uh i subscribe to it um uh starts with an r what am i thinking uh It'll come to me in a second. But you know what I do is I go ahead and I fork over some money to the universities for library privileges. Typically, it's $100 a year and I get privileges. Uh, if I pay the $100 a year like I do at, say, Emory University, and they have a gigantic database with links all over the world. So... I can, have you ever tried to uh, get into the uh, Vatican archives to see any sort no, of ca I haven't. cataclysm stuff? No, I haven't. But boy, would that be would uh, be interesting. Uh, oh, yes, wouldn't. I know it, it's been a hot place lately. I know that's where Diana Pasalka got some information for her book American Cosmic on UFOs and stuff, and that's where uh, Brian Murescu got some information for his book The Immortality Key. Oh, did he? Um, so yeah, I mean you can definitely find it's obviously I mean you have to think that they have probably a lot of the records from certain times that you couldn't find anywhere else, I would imagine. Uh-huh. Yeah. I don't I'm not familiar with who was that that you said that got now Brian, I I know him uh Diana Pasalka. Diana Pasalka okay. is I think she's a professor of theology or um something like that at uh university of north carolina but she she wrote a book called american cosmic on uh like ufos uap oh okay that, that kind of stuff okay yeah I, i'm not familiar with that name but yeah that's that's how i access you know i i bite the bullet and i i pay for the privileges of being able to use you know library databases and then there's also um sci-hub which is sort of a uh black black market site out of russia where there's a group of people who that's how believe... crazy that is there's a black market site for scientific papers like what well like, because because no, of exactly what you said i know i know there, i'm saying that's are, how crazy there, that is yeah there are critical papers that are you, you got to pay 20 or 30 dollars to get past the paywall that's crazy unless you're affiliated with an institution and so that's what I do is I bite the bullet and I don't take a course, but I pay money to to get library privileges. But the whole point of Sci-Hub is they're trying to democratize science. Yeah. And so I do, um, God, why can't I think of the one that I use all the time? Um, it's an excellent source. Because it's, it's, it's the one you use all the time. You don't even think about it. That's why. I know. I know. Uh, it'll come to me in a second. But yeah, so I, you know, between all of those sources, I can usually get 90% of the papers I'm looking for. You know, I could do a share screen right now. I'll show you. Okay. And I can pull up, for example. Uh, we do have a couple one... questions, though. Um, okay. It's a follow-up one from uh, Given uh, Zero Fox. Um, okay, I'll, let's I'll have let you it. figure that one out. Uh, he wanted to ask because he's from Michigan too. We were kind of chatting a little bit in the live stream chat, and uh, he had a couple uh, of his questions already answered. But he asked, he wanted to know about the isostatic rebound being 
the reason for all the spring-fed rivers and a spot like Grayling uh, that is near confluence headwater of two rivers, which is the Manistee going west and the Asable going east. Ah, okay. Uh, the answer is I don't know, but it sounds very plausible. And there are isostatic effects in Michigan, no doubt. And it, it very well could be. Certainly I, the, the, the aquifers up there in any of the regions uh, beneath the ice sheet or contiguous to the ice sheet, those aquifers were completely recharged. The Oglala Aquifer in the Midwest, the one that's being drawn down so rapidly by agriculture, that was completely recharged during the meltdown of the glaciers. Um, and so I fully suspect that, yeah, the groundwater, a lot of that meltwater is still being stored in the groundwater and is emerging as springs. Absolutely. I think whoever. Screen name the, says Sci-Hub is the Napster of research. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> hey, you guys have a pretty literate uh, listeners, don't you? Oh, yeah. No, I, we love our escapees. Shout out to everybody and all of our friends from UFO Twitter. Um, we should get you on uh, a Twitter space one day um, if you want. We've been hosting these Twitter spaces. Sometimes you get a you know hundred uh, people in there listening, you know, all at once. Just being able to because you can. I think if you have three hosts, you can can have th- thirty speakers, and then the rest of the people just listen. It's kind of like a podcast, but it's live. It's on Twitter. Oh, so. that sounds fun. Um, well, maybe yeah, we're uh, holidays. We're I'm, trying to. Yeah. What? Go ahead, Maurice. Oh, I was just going to say, if uh, if our listeners out there could help us pump it up, we're trying to get the 30 likes. We're two away. Ah. Dude, okay. that's so what dinky. What happens at 30 likes? <laughs> I don't even want to say that. To get 30 likes, what kind of dinky ass? No. That's how, that's, let me just hey, tell man. you something. You got to do that's what you got to do, brother. That's how amazingly nice and cool Randall is, is he'll spend the time to come on a podcast where, you know, this episode might get five, six, seven thousand views but that's because of him our normal videos don't get anywhere near that but he takes the time because he's a nice guy i mean i i'm I'm, i can assure you he's one of the nicest people and coolest people that we've interviewed and we've i I don't want to say the coolest because we have had some really cool people but there's a whole i would say there's about 10 people i can point out that are like these people are are fucking badass and and they deserve all the totally. credit in the world and you definitely there we go baby so well thank you mike um i like you of course i like praise no but it's like genuine I'm, I'm, <laughs> not, <laughs> I'm not i'm not fluffing up. i'm not fluffing here this is real this is from I'm the heart all right. Well, uh, so yeah, that was the question that we had. I'm trying to see if there was another one real quick here. Um, well, I'm ho- I'm hoping that a hundred of these people will come over and and listen to our festival of the dead because oh and, they will oh because it's going to be cool. It's it's awesome stuff. And and, and you know and here's the th- the cool thing about it. We all know Halloween. It's coming up. We're celebrated. Kids love it. And what people don't realize is how deep and profound the roots of it actually are. And in fact, Mm. once you've watched it, you'll understand the connections between our modern observance of Halloween and what we've just been talking about for the last couple hours. Yeah. So, no, I'm I'm telling you, we're going to get some people in there. I'll definitely tweet it out. I'll retweet it and I'll get everybody involved. Um, Sweet. 
Just uh, we got another question. My okay. um, co-host on the Roswell UFO Symposium says, "Will you please ask Randall if he will come on our podcast?" Now, um, I'll warn you: if you do come on, it's going to be about UFOs, bro. I just want to throw that out there. <clears throat> well, you know, I have avoided the whole UFO question. Um, I believe it's an <laughs> integral part of the whole puzzle, uh, and I have certain things that I've come to believe about it, you know, and I'll put it in this context. You know, if I look into ancient stories, legends, folklore, mythology, for example, all of the world, all over the world, we have stories about gigantic floods, right? Mm -hmm. Well, we can easily make the, 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 the case now that those stories are based in real events. We know that there have been gigantic floods and they've left their traces all over the planet gigantic floods way beyond anything we've seen within historical times okay but in prehistorical times yes it is and it's very legitimate to talk about the post-diluvial world and the anti-diluvian world that's a very legitimate thing and i like to use that term anti-diluvial because it kind of reconnects us with some of our own classical uh concepts and and terminology um but yeah, so the, the thing is, is that um, when you look at this aspect of it and you go, okay, well, here's all of these stories about floods and there really is, there's a historical reality behind them. Now, what are the other universally ubiquitous stories that have come down to us, oftentimes intertwined with the flood stories, is the stories about the gods. Now, that has become a big subject of inquiry uh, to UFO investigators, and rightfully so. Um, I believe that in order for us to understand the modern phenomena, just like we can look at the modern phenomena of the paleohydrologic evidence engraved into the planetary landscape, and just as that can be informed, by reference to ancient traditions and stories and myths and so on. Likewise, I believe that we can actually tease out, extract hard scientific information from the stories, the myths that have come down to us. This has been my approach to trying to understand the UFO phenomenon. And I have deliberately refrained from talking about it because after considering it for many years, I've concluded that what people are thinking is UFOs um, is not what people think it is. Um, and I have to leave it at that for now. But because of the fact that, you know, NASA has now just authorized <laughs> the second only UFO study, and they're declaring that they're going to be fully transparent, fully mm -hmm. democratic, that all of their data is going to be publicly available. I'm going to take them at their word for that. So I'm going to be following that over the next nine months because the, the investigation is uh, slated to take about nine months, they're saying. Um, so NASA's convened a team of 16 scholars and scientists and academics um, who are going to now study the UFO phenomena for the next nine months. They they launched it on October 24th, so it just yeah. happened, right? Um so I'm going to see what they come up with. but There's a report coming out on uh, Halloween, too, by the way. 
by that group or uh i I think it's the congressional um, okay or i don't know i'm not big into the the um i'm sure somebody one of the ufo people in the chat will bring it up but um but yeah there's supposed to be a report due out on halloween supposedly supposed to have some interesting stuff but it's not going to be something like game changing thing. But okay. yeah, you're right about the NASA stuff. I'm, I'm keeping an eye on that as well because yeah. initially they're like, we're only going to throw like $50,000 at it or whatever. And now it seems to be getting bigger. You also have Avi Loeb and the Galileo project. You know, you have a lot of interest in this topic right now. So yeah. And that's why I feel that maybe it's time for me to go ahead and start putting some of this stuff some of my own conclusions about it but yeah. there are reasons that once i put it out there there'll be re- it'll reasons why i've kept it on the down low as long as i have uh, okay there's there's reasons for that and i can uh, get down with that i mean i don't have a conventional um like oh there's physical aliens coming here you know i have a more of a I love the the book Carl Jung wrote on it, and it left it ambiguous, kind of like what you're, mm-hmm. what you're doing right now. But uh, I, I think 1,000% it's connected to consciousness in our minds, um, whether it be some sort of symbol of something that we can't fathom based on our perceptions or something along those lines. Um, I, I definitely um, think there's more going on than uh, we can perceive, so it's not as simple as mm-hmm. aliens coming from a different planet or whatever it could be interdimensional it could be something that's been here um for a while uh it could be a lot of different things so could be a lot of different things and actually i think it is at least several different things that's that's definitely a hot topic but one of those things i think has i'm surprised at this point that no one else has come to this conclusion um and that's where i'm going to be getting into that's you know 2023 the fact that you know that this there's this heightened interest in the subject even even on official levels i feel like well i'm going to put my own thoughts out there and into into the mix and just see what happens you should you should and i think you should come on our podcast and do it (laughs) (laughs) now that's my own (laughs) that's the pitch no bro you can go to yours after oh yeah do yours first do 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 what you got to do uh, but yeah, no, I, that, look, you shouldn't be afraid to talk about something that interests you. Like I, oh, you know, I'm, I'm not, not say, afraid. I'm it's not saying not you're a... afraid. I'm not saying that I'm, right. that's not what I meant. I meant you shouldn't feel like your reputation, uh, could be tarnished or nicked or anything like that based on talking about any right. of these other things. Cause this is, again, these are the biggest questions that face us. Like, are we alone? Is there more to life? Why are we here? You know, is there purpose? Sure. Did we create purpose? All these different things. All and I think things. that nobody talks about this stuff. So it becomes so taboo and it pisses me off because it's like, if you bring this shit up, you're the weirdo, but it's like these, <laughs> how could you not think about this? I don't want to sit in front of my TV and drone out and do the same thing every day right. and then die. Right. That sounds fucking exactly. stupid. So I'll, I'll put it this way. Um, and whether whether my uh, concerns are overblown or not remains to be seen. But I think of people like Leo Zillard in the late 30s or Andre Hellbronner, who, through their studies, had come to realize the potential of atomic fission. And you're sitting there just like Einstein understood the potential in atomic fission and thought, well, if this is real, if, you know, the chain reaction that can be produced here is real. There are some really profound game-changing 
cultural changing consequences to this information. And he rightfully was reluctant to share that information until World War II broke out. And he started thinking that the Nazis had access to this information and they were going to be exploiting it. And in fact, when they first shared it with the Roosevelt administration, attention to it for about nine months or a year into the war. And then finally, when they did pay attention to it, they go, oh, my God, there, there's information like that that's out there. And if, if you were one of those physicists in the late 30s who really understood the potential, the destructive potential, now and I'm not saying that this, this is destructive, but I just believe to be a little bit cautious, a little bit wary, um, because it, it, you know, it's it's the kind of information that could completely alter the paradigm completely. Yeah, that's what we were talking about, Robert Oppenheimer, paradigm shifters. That's this yeah. is one of those things because once if there is a technology or something that can be accessed, um, whether it be consciousness based or material or whatever. Uh, you're going to need something similar to um, Atomic Energy Commission or something like that to oversee this technology yeah. because, you know, look at the crazy people in the world right now doing crazy things. So, yeah, um, yeah I'm 100% there with you, right, you know, on that. And you were right about Einstein, too. That was in that American Prometheus book that he, his only contribution to the Manhattan Project and the atomic bomb was writing that letter to Roosevelt saying, I was approached about this. I'm a pacifist, but that's also why they didn't give him security clearance in the U.S. because he was mm -hmm. a pacifist. So, yeah, uh, very interesting. Yeah. So I ju I'll just say this. The technology is out there. There have been numerous independent researchers from Nikolai Tesla to Wilhelm Reich to Victor Schauberger to Walter Russell, Oppenheimer himself, as we talked about earlier. And there's quite a list of others that made inroads into these alternate technologies. And one of the things that has happened, of course, is that in many cases, Schauberger, Reich, Tesla, that knowledge was suppressed. Why? I don't, I, I'm not going to say because I don't know what the motive was, um, but the people who were uh, suppressing it, but it was all of them had, had their research, you know, Reich had his laboratory destroyed by the FDA uh, reams and reams, two truckloads of notes and things that he was working on hauled away and burned in an incinerator. What was in all that stuff? Well, there is a technology and it's out there and it's waiting in the wings and the time is getting very, very close when it's going to reveal itself. And it ties in with everything else. It ties in with the deep history of our civilization on this planet. It ties in with the whole UFO phenomena. It ties in with the cycles of catastrophe. And we're standing on the threshold right now of some major, major disclosures. Um, and so I'm going to do my part uh, to whatever I can to facilitate and accelerate this democratization of knowledge and putting it out there. Um, but as we speak... Yeah, play, pieces are being put into place um, for a major disclosure, and we will get into that in the near future. Um, I know 
Last time I've been sort of broaching this, people are getting frustrated. Well, why doesn't he just come in and tell us? There's people doing that right now in the comments. I'm sure, yes. (laughs) I can't. And I wouldn't even if I could. I wouldn't. You know why? Because there's a point at which people have to find out things for themselves. And what I'm going to do, and what I have been doing, is I've been putting the bits and pieces out there for several years now. Somebody who is following it and really paying attention, there's enough pieces already out there to put those together. But, you know, I I am not, I'm not the kind of teacher that spoon feeds people. If you want this knowledge, it's there. The pieces are there. You're going to have to put out a little effort. You yeah, have you're to real earn... Socrates types. Your yes, type. This, this is, is not this is Mino. Yes. Yeah, this is Mino right here. This is the dialogue yeah. Mino. That's right. That's exactly right, Mike. And if if you want this knowledge, you have to earn it. You have to earn it. It's not something that's just going to be given to you, bestowed upon you. Uh, I'm trying to uh, I'm trying to accelerate and abbreviate the process, which taken has taken me fifty years. But that doesn't mean that we can sit here in one podcast and you open your mouth and I spoon in some baby food and now you're going to get it. It don't work that way. It just doesn't work that way. No, I'm down. I like it. And you know what? You don't have to say any more. You know, we'll talk about it off air. You'll you'll tell me all the secrets. I won't tell anybody and we'll go from there. Um, But no, real quick, though, just so, you know, and again, we'll have you back on in the future, and you are welcome on our new UFO podcast if you would so like to choose to come on there and talk about that subject, even if it's just pure speculation. Um, Daniel Haynes says, I have so many questions, I don't even know what to ask first. This is my first opportunity to directly ask him something after I've been listening to him for multiple years. Uh, let's see what one of his questions is. Okay, it says, it says, if I believe I've discovered a fossil that wouldn't really get a lot of attention by other people on the top of a cliff at a quarry in Chattanooga, Tennessee, is there somebody Randall recommends to show the fossil to? Ooh, good question. Um, hmm. I don't know, but that's an area I'm very interested in. I'm very interested in that. Okay, whole he goes on to I'm, I'm scrolling down. He says, it looks like a shell of some kind of a seashell and is embedded into a rock at the top of the quarry uh, that had limestone that was dug out for construction on the mm-hmm. Chickamauga Dam. I think that's how you pronounce it. I think it's Chickamauga. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I you're think. right. Chickamauga. Yeah, you're right. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of limestone in there. Um, let's see. I'm trying to remember. I mean, I've done the, 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 the geological... Um, what is it? It's, I think it's close to Permian, 240 to 250 million years ago. Uh, I think that's when most of those limestones were laid down. Now, I'm not an expert on, you know, being able to identify the fossils. It's something I definitely want to know, know more about. But back to the thing, that's why I said I need, I need to be three people, um, at least three people, um, that we can share one intellectual capacity in three different people, right? So the alternate me can go do some research and then we can like immediately transfer that knowledge over to, to my well, main brain. If AI gets good enough, we can have a couple of uh, Randall bots and you can just do a show where it's just you and the two Randalls. There we Are go. You... 
Me and the two Randalls. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> so I think we're looking at 240 million euro limestones there. Um, so I go back and I would go, you know, what are, what were, what was swimming in the ocean 240 million years ago? And that would be where I'd start in trying to find an answer to that. Uh, uh, but I don't really couldn't recommend anybody. I would imagine there's probably a university in Chattanooga with a geology department. That's where I would start. Let's see what university. Okay, I saw. Did you do a trip to uh, Tennessee? I thought I saw earlier. This oh, I've last done year. a couple of trips up yeah. there. Yeah, studying studying the patterns of erosion and deposition because there's some really really interesting stuff up there that people don't know about. You know, caves and gorges and slot canyons and cataracts and rock arches and natural bridges. And a lot of it is hidden under the canopy of vegetation. So the next trip we're going to be doing is going to be the, it's going to be the third of a trifecta, which is we did the lower Cumberland, the middle Cumberland and the upper Cumberland. That's coming up in late March. And we've, uh, we've rented, uh, reserved a resort, Cliff View uh, Cliffview Resort, pull that up and take a look at it. We're going to, in late March, we're going to take over the whole Cliffview Resort and we're going to use that as a base to explore. We're going to do, uh, Middlesboro, Kentucky, which is, uh, an ancient impact crater, also known as an astrobleme with a town in the middle of it. We're going to explore that. We're going to be exploring some of the densest concentration of natural rock arches and bridges in the country. We're going to be exploring cataracts, well, canyons, waterfalls, um, and we're going to be doing it out of this amazing place called Cliff View. Awesome! Have you found that sounds, that sounds you found awesome. It? I could uh, do it. I could. I could do. Oh, a quick I wasn't looking. Here. I thought Maurice was doing it, but then I realized young Maurice is not. Wow, he, he said it <laughs> once. Okay. Uh, Daniel followed up and says it's at Greenway Farms Quarry in Chattanooga, Tennessee, in case you ever wanted to check it out one day. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, well, I'm going to be up there. I, I'm going up there more and more because, you know, I, I'm i looking at land in eastern Tennessee. You know, there's a group of us coming together that's raising some money, and uh, hopefully we'll find the ideal piece of property and we're going to develop it according to the 21st century version of the ancient archaic principles. And it's going to be both a center for teaching and a base for doing tours, a place for conferences. Uh, Just let me know where it is so I can show up a few years later and conquer it. And then. Okay. <laughs> oh, but, okay. But, 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 no, uh, no, but but seriously, um, so is this wor- is this going to be tied to the school thing too? Or yes. Is this- oh, okay. Yeah, yes. Okay. Yes. Absolutely. That's what that's what it is. That's exactly what it is. Um, Are you guys going to build a megalithic structure or what? Oh yeah, of course. Have you ever? Heard I mean, the- we may we may not be you know moving fifty ton stones. <laughs> but we'll uh, definitely do a hinge there would most you should tell people you are though um the have you ever heard of the gold pyramid in illinois uh, i don't think so dude go watch this everybody should go <laughs> this is crazy but um there's this short documentary on uh youtube i think it's like 
10, 15, 20 minutes long or so. The Concrete King of Chicago um, built, um, I think it's Wadsworth, Illinois. I live not far, probably like a half hour, 45 minutes away from this thing, and I've driven there before. He built this huge pyramid house. It's a pyramid, and he gold-plated the outside, uh, and he has like a 150-foot statue of um, Egyptian gods sitting out in front. Um, really? But they made a documentary about it. Anyways, this guy, I think he died or his wife died or something, and this place is kind of like abandoned now. But you can see this thing from pretty far. It's actually really super interesting. Uh, but, yeah, check out the Gold Pyramid. It's Like I said, it's on YouTube. I'll try and add the link down below after we're done. But you'll, okay, you, yeah. would like that. you would like that, Randall. Check that out. Yeah, there's some very interesting stuff going on in Illinois. Um, and, yeah, you know, Illinois has some of the most um, what you call anomalous events in the country. There's a concentration, of, particularly in the southern area of Illinois, which I suspect is probably related to the presence of the of the fault line there um, because fault lines can create some pretty strange effects in the geomagnetic field. Um, but you know, the, uh, remember the great earthquake that was there? Um, uh, the, the new Madrid fault zone there. Yeah. And the great earthquake. You probably I heard think of that. I've been living outside of Chicago for, let's see. Um, 15 years, 16 years, and I think there's only been one earthquake, and it was like a 4.0 or something. Uh-huh. So we're, we're not getting in any sort of action like you would get on the coast. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, but, yeah, there's there's interesting stuff going on there. I'm trying to find a picture of the lodge. I keep pulling oh, yeah. up, and it keeps bringing up the same same video. I keep meaning um, to try and get down to uh, Maurice, and I keep talking about it, going to check out the Cahokia on the mounds down there in southern Illinois. Oh yeah, that's worth the trip. In fact, we are planning a mound trip sometime, probably late summer, twenty twenty three. Uh, we're going to focus. Awesome. Pardon? So that sounds awesome. Yeah, we'd probably focus a lot on the Hopewellian structures in in Ohio. There's so much stuff up there. Be a little bit of a drive to go from there over to the Mississippian stuff, um, but yeah, Cahokia is is definitely worth checking out. Yeah, we've uh, had Dr. Gregory Little on like six or seven yeah. times. Aside from you, he's one of our top ten favorite guests that I was mentioning uh, earlier. But he wrote that whole book or has that illustrated book on all the North American mounds. Um, I'm I'm super fascinated by it, and uh, he's always posting like the effigies and the pipes and all that kind uh-huh. of stuff. Oh yeah. yeah, I'm definitely definitely interested in getting to like Serpent Mound and then Cahokia and all those. Sites. Yeah, yeah Serpent Mound. Control. Yeah, Serpent Mound would be on the uh, Monumental Earthworks tour. Let's see if I can share screen. Yeah. Okay. So this is the place. We're taking this over late March and using this as a basis for our explorations. You seeing this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's Cliff View Lodge right there. So it's we're amazing. we're le- we're we're gonna just pretty much take over that place for that week. So we're hoping to get you know thirty people to to do this adventure with us uh, late March. 
we want to get in there before the, the trees leaf out so we can really see what's hiding in that those landscapes. And uh, so that's that's the Cliff View Lodge. Let's see if they have any other pictures here. Uh, let's see if it, yeah, there we go. Look at this place. So it's gonna be great. We'll probably have meals out on the on the decks. You know, we'll be able to have, you know, after we've been out exploring during the day, we will uh, gather on the decks and have lectures. Gorgeous. Maybe, some maybe have some jamming. I know we'll have some, musicians there i'm a percussionist we have we try to fit in some some good jamming mike we're not hearing you yeah what's going on there brother can you hear me i'm now? hearing there, there he you is. are oh yeah, there you are. i was gonna say yeah no that sounds awesome i'm definitely uh i'm definitely down and maurice and i are both musicians as well oh i'd okay. like to bring the drone out there fly it around yeah yeah we've yeah, been playing I... a jam band since we were 17 uh uh-huh Maurice is actually, if anybody's interested, I have the link down below to Maurice's new CD. Check it out. What kind of music do you guys do? Jam band stuff. Jam band stuff, okay. Yeah, like, my stuff's more singer-songwriter, yeah, electronic. Is, yeah, his is more sappy, you know, <laughs> Radiohead, Wilco. That's Maurice has really transformed over the years into a singer-songwriter type. But well, our roots are know. like Grateful Dead, Fish, you know, jam sure, band Sure, yeah. Well, my roots were, yeah, in the original, you know, I saw the dead five times between 1968 and 1973. 68, their first national tour. I That's some of their best shit. Them. That was their best shit. I think that was still their peak, you know, when they were really exploring the outer fringes. You know, Europe I remember 72 is probably my favorite. Um, that Jack Straw, Cumberland Blues. Uh, okay. Uh, all that stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, all of those bands back then, yeah, I was pretty much. But check that. You can see there why they call it Cliff View. Oh, yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah, right up on the cliff. Isn't that amazing? So that's that's going to be our, our base for exploration right there. It's a good base. I know, man. I can't wait. It's going to be fun. And uh, we haven't put – we're still just really beginning to work on the itinerary. We, we usually go through three or four perspective itineraries to get, you know, you got to fit how much time you've got, how much distance you got to travel and what's the most awesome stuff to see. Um, all of that. We'll have some great food. We're still work. We got one guy who's going to be working on putting the whole food thing together. Um, so yeah, it, it's going to be fun. It's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be a combination of having a lot of fun and also learning some really awesome stuff and traveling around exploring these these amazing landscapes. Yeah. Sounds awesome. Well, that'll be on your website, I assume at some point. Oh yeah, right? yeah, that'll be on the website. Okay. It's it's we've got it reserved for the last week in March. Okay. Um, if you need a guy to capture it all, let me know. I'll bring some gear. Yeah, okay. Maurice is a professional photographer, videographer. And actually that's when we're going to be premiering our documentary, though, Maurice. So we'll have to see what weekend that oh, is. Oh, okay. Um, we'll the, definitely the premiere talk is about the second that. week, I think. Yeah. Okay. Um, but yeah, no, I'm definitely down. And I, like I said, too, at some point, we'd like, you know, whether it be on your own or a trip or whatever, come to Michigan. Because I do think, you know, we can get into some stuff. And actually, uh -huh. I would like to get back up to the UP, too, because there's some amazing stuff up there. Yeah. Yeah. The upper is that upper peninsula yeah 
Yeah, okay. Oh yeah, I've never been up there. That's I'd love to do that. And there's yeah. rock quarries, there's we actually we went uh through this underground cave Maurice and I the one year we were up there. This thing got tight. I'm a big boy. I'm like 62, you know, so um <laughs> Some of the some of the areas got a little tough to uh, get through, yeah. but it was this underground cave. You almost di- had to die to get to the bottom because it was like all moss to get to this like opening, this this cave mouth opening. And then you know it's all dark for I don't know how many miles do you think that was like a mile or two, Maurice? I don't know, around that, maybe a little less. And when you get out, you you're like, oh, I couldn't imagine doing that. Imagine like living like that too, and just having to find your way through caves like that like that's crazy well if we do any caving maurice i'm gonna let you go ahead of me and i figure <laughs> if you go through without getting stuck then i should be able to yeah I'm... yeah I'll, I'll, I'll pave the way i'm down okay now you should send me because i'll sacrifice I'm... myself I'm for you my yeah friend. you'll know any, any, so any if 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 Mike can get through, then there's high probabilities that the rest of us will be able to get through. Is that what yeah. I'm If I can get through, about? anybody can get through, okay? Okay. You well, Yeah, I'm telling you, I'm yeah, I'm working on that, man. I I'm a I'm a I'm basically a young skinny guy trapped in the body of a fat <laughs> old guy, is the way I put it. I'll tell you what. Inside uh, there's a young skinny guy when you're trying to get out. I'll tell you what, you're looking great. You're looking very god-esque, you know. You got that that well, look, you know. So you do what you're doing. I mean, I got to tell you, having a you know, my son just turned one, and I'll tell you, just picking him up because he's a big boy. He's gonna be way bigger than I am, uh, and <laughs> okay. it's it's whipping my ass into shape. So oh, good, and and it will. This is your first son. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, it just gets harder from here. Oh, I know. He's one. So is he ambulatory yet? Yeah, I mean, he's he's walking, he's talking, okay. he's he's doing everything pretty much. I mean, he's uh like okay. I said, my wife takes him to the park and they think that uh you know, he's a 2-3-year-old cuz he's the same size as some of the other like kids that are like actually talking with their parents and stuff like that. Okay. So um but yeah, no football, no football. That's one of the rules, no football. Okay. Well, I play you football, know, I, no football. When I had my kid, you know, the first I thought, you know, once he was born, I'm thinking, you know, this is easier than I thought it was going to be. And I don't know what you do, but we had a bassinet for him with a mm-hmm. side that folded down. Yeah. And me and my wife just brought that bassinet in, set it next to our bed on her side. So if he woke up at night, you know, when he's a month or a few months old and started to whimper or cry, fold down the bassinet, roll over and... I barely yeah. even knew it, you know, and I'm thinking, you know what? I was like prepared for what is all this stuff about, you know, st- stalking the floor at night. And right. I never had any of that. And I'm thinking, this is really easy. Yeah. Then he started walking. <laughs> then it suddenly just morphed into oh, a whole yeah. other level of complexity. Oh, yeah. Like constantly, went, oh, my God. No, 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 because yeah. it's a lot easier when you can just set them down and they basically stay there, right? Yeah, I think it's when your first one. I mean, you know, we're I'm overly cautious, obviously, but I look at my sisters who have had each a few kids, and they're like, "Yeah, yeah. it's all right, it's a, you know. Oh, it'll you know, be okay, yeah. you know. You know. Yeah. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's one of those things where he's he's on the move and he's he's a big boy. He's smart too, and. I don't I'm know. Sure We've got our is. hands full. We've got our hands full. That's for sure. So. Yeah. Just don't. I mean, 
uh, I hope you don't dump them in some public school somewhere where they start brainwashing them at five years old. I mean, yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna teach them what I've been wanting to be taught in schools for a long time. Randall knows whether, what's up. Whether he's being taught in school or not, I'm gonna teach him philosophy when he turns Good five, for you. six. So like, just start with the basics, you know, and go from there. By the time he's five or six, we should have our school up and running. And I'm hugely about wanting to bring young people. I want it to be a school where you'll have young people and old people and middle-aged people and everything in between all sitting in a classroom together. And this has started happening now. You know, I've had kids now coming on a lot of my tours recently in the last year or two. And I remember uh, first time somebody asked me, a, a lady asked me, this was a tour we did two years ago about, um, she called and she says, well, I really want to come on your tour, but I have a, I have a nine-year-old. So, and you know, said, well, bring your nine-year-old, bring your nine-year-old. And it turned out she brought this wonderful little girl um, who's now been on three tours because the little, the girl who is now then nine, I guess she's now 10 approaching 11, or maybe she just turned nine. She came on the first tour. And I remember that first day, she was the only child, and she was very shy, didn't say much. By four days later, five days at the end of the tour, she's totally buddies with everybody. She's laughing, having a good time, playing tricks on people. Um, the last tour she was on, the whole tour, she's there with her notebook and her pen taking notes. You know, And we had four kids on the tour, and I thought it went great. I thought it was just... I really enjoyed having kids because they're just, they're not jaded. They're, they're, you know, they're wide open. Um, and then having kids, some of them became really good friends. Um, so yeah, I, I want something. And, you know, I, I organized classes for homeschool students for 15 years. Yeah. That's so, what you were saying last time. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I didn't know that. I had a, I had my policy was that, you know, Parents would come to me, and sometimes it was kids that's been homeschooled their whole life. Other times it was kids who had been in public school, and it just wasn't working out for any number of reasons. Um, or so what I did, what my my um, approach to it was that I would say I had a I rented a room in a church, and it was a big enough room that I had you know I typically would have anywhere from five to eight students, and I kind of cut it off at there because I noticed. Once you get to seven or eight students, as long as you're not over that, I was able to like pretty much know where everybody was at, you know, in terms of math. If somebody was not getting it, I knew that they weren't getting it. And I realized once you got up to about 10 kids, I was starting to not be able to keep up. Like who's not getting it, you know? And I'm thinking, what's it like if you've got a class with 25 or 30 kids, right? So obviously, you know, with mathematics, that's the kind of thing so many people came in. I heard this over and over again from both adults and, and kids. Well, I just, I don't have an aptitude for math. I can't, I, you know, I did really lousy in math in school. And I said, well, it's not that you don't have an aptitude. I mean, you have a, a your brain is at least a thousand cubic centimeters, right? And so you, you have an aptitude for math, but math is the kind of thing that has to be individually tailored. A person has to learn it at their own pace. When you have a small group, that's possible. And what I would do was the ones that learned it faster, I would get them to help the ones that were a little bit slower. 
right? So it was a way of kind of equalizing things out and it helped the ones, you know, the thing is, is that even if you're smart and you get it right away, if without repetition, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily sink in unless you're got an eidetic mind or a, a, a what do you call it? A, 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 a photographic a, a, memory, photographic. I was trying to say a photogenic. Yeah. If you have a photogenic, photogenic brain. Um, but yeah. So the thing is, is I, I, very much about that. Um, you know, repetition is how you really, that's why I'll go over stuff with, with people multiple times because you hear it once. Oh, I heard that already. I don't need to hear that again. And then we actually, days later, I think we talked about that either on the first, yeah. the second episode was how you yeah, were explaining we how you got better at remembering things through the, uh, your Masonic rituals or like going over the Masonic yes. rituals. I thought that was really interesting because that's, um, I mean, I was actually blessed with with a really, really good memory, uh, and I have OCD on top mm-hmm. of that, but um, but you're right. If you don't understand, because, like, I'll remember things, and then in the conversation, it's like, oh, but I should have um, understood it more. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, it's one thing to re- just remember something, like, because there's so much knowledge out there. Um, some of the more peripheral topics I like. I don't know a ton about, you know, the stuff or whatever, so I have to rely on my memory. But then even then, it's like I don't fully understand that, so I'm just not going to speak yeah. on that. But, yeah. And, you know, like, you know, 15, 20 minutes ago, I was trying to remember the name of the uh, research source that I used, and I yeah. couldn't remember. I said it started with an R. <laughs> research gate. There you go. It's called research gate. All right. right. For anybody who's doing research. I know research gate. Know. Yeah, yeah. But that was in there. I just, I, the, 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 the drawer, the file drawer was a little rusty. I couldn't get it open right away. Um, but by, by letting it rest, the thing just kind of rose up to the surface. Research gate. Yeah, I got it now. But no, I, see, I like that. And you, as a musician, know that if you're going to get good at a song, you have to do it over and over and over and over, and over again, right? Uh huh. You have to. It's the yeah. repetition that you leads to the perfection. And so when people start, you know, showing signs of intellectual laziness, they just want, oh, I just want everything and I want it now and I don't have to work for it and I don't want to do, put forth any efforts. Say, listen, that's not an attitude that's going to, you no, know. No, you're right. And actually, um, it's more for us, at least, I can't speak to everybody, but for you're talking about music, it was more rewarding, uh, like our guitar hero trey anastasio from fish you know he was doing stuff with jazz and fusion and the way he jams like to improv the way that some of these bands that we like jam bands improv you not Mm. only have to understand music theory but you have to know how to employ tactical things in the jam like tension and release and yeah. coming, ba- coming back to the main melody and playing <laughs> off of that and, and absolutely and things yes. like that. So it's it, it's a very for us it was an intellectual pursuit. It wasn't like oh I just like playing the guitar man or whatever. It was a very intellectual um, thing. And and through that you become good at the guitar because you you want to do those things that these people are doing. And you know you're not going to get there by like you said like being lazy or whatever or taking shortcuts. That's exactly right. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking, let's see, I, it's now two o'clock. Yeah. We're going to wrap it up here. 2 a.m. So I'm loving the conversation. Would like to keep going for another hour, but I'm going to have to, 
Yeah, we're going to have to wrap it up. I just have to uh, do a few more things before bed, and then I've got a big day. Friday is always a Thursday, rather, Thursday tomorrow. But yeah. uh, I got a lot on my schedule tomorrow and Friday, and then I'm still putting the pieces together for this Festival of the the Dead on Sunday night. Festival of the Dead. Uh, so, yeah, it, um, again, everybody go check out the links down below to Randall's website. Uh, he's doing that Festival of the Dead stream. Um, he also is going to be featured on Episode 8 of Graham Hancock's new series, Ancient Apocalypse. Uh, when does that air, by the way? When's the release date? It's going to air on, I don't know the time. It's going to air on um, November 11th. Uh, on the That's going to be the same day as we're recording it on the 7th. It'll be released on the 11th, the same day that Netflix launches the series. Awesome. Do you know, if, too, is it going to be one of those things where you can watch all the episodes at once, or are they going to be staggered released? I, you know, I actually don't know the answer to that question. Okay. Um, I, I've actually, I've wondered. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, I heard at one point they might be like uh, – an all at once release so if okay. somebody wanted to binge watch yeah usually don't... netflix says that some things i don't i think that they do it the other way but yeah hopefully that's the case because i like to binge that kind of stuff well it should be it, i think it should be fun and uh and i think people are going to find it very interesting and particularly i i can guarantee you'll never look at halloween the same again nice Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. Um. and growing up I think Halloween was second only to Christmas as far as, uh, you know, the, 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 Fun. the, yeah, I just, I, cause I loved scary stuff yeah. as a kid. I, I loved anything to do with monsters and scary stuff. None of that stuff scares me. I wish it did. The real scary stuff. I don't know if you've seen, but hereditary that movie or like uh Midsommar. Check hereditary sounds familiar. That'll keep you well, thinking a couple days. Okay. I'll text it to you. I'll text it no. to you. No. Okay. All right. Um, so you don't forget, because I do want you to watch. If you like spooky or, or creepy things, you'll like those two movies. Oh, okay. Well. And they're psychological thrillers, too. They're not just, okay. you know. Um, well, I, you know, I was, I grew up, you know, when I was 1958, when Universal released all of their classic 30s and 40s monster horror movies to television, I was seven years old. And yeah. by some... I don't know who was the programming director, but they uh, one of the local stations there in, in uh, Minneapolis where I would watch. I don't know if you guys are old enough. You probably are. When Saturday after Saturday morning cartoons was a of big course. thing for kids. Yeah. Yeah. Like that was when we took over the television and we would watch. Are you saying everything. we're old now? Is this what you're saying? Well, that's yes. But I'm, <laughs> that's implicit in what I'm saying. But, um, I don't know who made this decision, but they started showing the, um, like at, at noon, I think it was at noon, maybe one o'clock. It was like after the cartoons, they would show the old universal horror movies, you know, Frankenstein, Dracula with Bella old Lugosi, uh, you know, Invisible Man with Claude Rains, the werewolf of London and all of these stories. Right. So I just remember one morning and I, I was I, I reason I know I was seven, I would have guessed I was seven, but I went back and actually researched when Universal released these movies to television. And um, 
So I knew then that I was seven years old and I was watching it and they were playing Werewolf of London. And it was about um, this botanist who is in search of this rare plant that only blooms under the full moon. And it was in Tibet. So he is makes this expedition to Tibet and he's going up to, to where they think this flower is and all of the porters are superstitious and they get scared and they refuse to go any further. So he's got one guy with him and they're going up and then this guy gets afflicted with some kind of weird force and he can't move or something. So the, the hero, the botanist, he goes on alone and he's up there on the cliff. He's looking through binoculars and he sees the plant, the, I think it was the Marifosa plant. And there it is. He sees it at the base of this big boulder. So then he goes over there and he's kneeling down. Now I'm watching this. And of course, I really don't know what it's about, but it's interesting because they're in the mountains and this strange force. I'm starting to get interested, right? So he kneels down in front of this big boulder. And as he's kneeling down there, you see on the top of this boulder, you see, you see, like, this is what you see, something like this. Yeah. The werewolf comes up over the top of the boulder. And I'm like, (laughs) what is that? Like, oh, my God. You know, but at that moment, I was hooked. That was the moment I became hooked on monster movies. So I grew up right into my teenage years being obsessed with monster movies and, you know, saw them all. and, and, um, And I'm sure that led into some of the more anomalous things that I've been into all of those years um you know and then alongside that of course was dinosaurs dinosaurs and monsters those were my two big things as a kid well i mean dinosaurs are monsters basically real ones well they are yeah (laughs) they are um Um, but okay festival of the dead sunday night please check it out i mean i'm highly recommending this thing and i don't do that often so everybody go check it out i know it's going to be great his atlantis uh live stream was awesome that two-part one uh when did you do that it was like april or something that was awesome i think part one was in february I yeah it was you're right a, m- a month you're, later we did part right. two yeah um that was awesome i know this is going to be badass too so check this out i have the link down below to his website He's got a how-to page. Check that out. Check out his YouTube channel. He has a podcast, Cosmographia, that he does with the Snake Brothers, Russ and Kyle. Uh, shout out to them. And yep. uh, shout out to Brad and uh, Mike. And, um, yeah, anything else you want to plug? Darren and Graham of the Grimerica. Okay. The boys, they're good guys. We've been working with them now for – We've had Darren on. I think we had Darren on uh, a long, long time, probably three years ago maybe. Yeah, we collaborated on this last two-week Scabland trip we did uh, a couple of months in September. Okay. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Um, but, um, yeah, so we're working together. And then, yeah, there's – there's, you know what's happening is there's kind of a team of people, an extended team growing around this, people bringing different skill sets to the table and different knowledge sets. And it's amazing what's starting to happen. And I think there is – a network growing. And, and really, from my perspective, I mean, we've had people now from all over the world come on some of our tours. And also, you know, I'm getting connections with people all over the world. And uh, and there are people all over this planet that are really 
asking questions and going, there's more to this story. And I, I, I really, I, you know, it sounds a little bit kind of hyperbolic and new agey, but I really think that we are getting close to some kind of an awakening. Oh, and I hope there's so. a lot of, there's a, you know, there's a lot of shit going on and a lot of, bu- I'll say bullshit out there. And we don't need to get into that, but I think yeah, we're in a fool's thinking, gold age right now. That's yeah. Sure. Yeah. Uh, anybody who's awake and thinking and paying attention knows that there's a lot of BS coming out there and it's usually coming from the upper echelons, but uh-huh. at any given time, there are tools available. If people will just start paying attention, you know, I, I'll end with this. I don't know. And at some point I'm really want to dive in and actually do some podcasts and even conferences or whatever on diving deep into the, to the grail mythos, okay. um, which I consider to be one of the most potent and powerful, um, uh, traditions within part of Western occultism or West, the Western esoterica. It's extremely powerful, potent stuff. Once you dive into it and, um, where was I going with this? Well, part of it I think has to do with it. it it's showing us a peek behind that veil. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's parting that veil somewhat and we're able to peer into this world that is gone now and has left only traces. It's almost like the ghost of that world is still here. Um, palimpsest is the word. There was, you know what a palimpsest is? It's where you would have an old document and, or, or an old painting, for example. Artist wants to reuse the canvas, so he, he mm. paints a new painting over the old painting. Or you write, you, you the new document is written on top of the old document, but if you peer very closely, you can begin to see the, the, the outlines of what was there underneath. That's kind of the, the, the metaphor that I use to understand. There is a veil that separates our 10,000 years of Holocene from the 200,000 years of deep history. And I think there are people all over the world that are becoming aware of that we're also realizing that there's almost like the human species and human civilization is at a crossroads right now. One of those roads is going to lead to oblivion. We're going to go down through this Malthusian fight over diminishing resources. And we can see that in what's happening right now in our foreign policy. We're lining up. We're making uh, an enemy out of our competitor, Russia. We're doing the same thing now to China. To what end? To what end? I mean, there, I don't see anything suggesting what the end game here is of this confrontational foreign policy that we've got. But on the other hand, there is the other road. There's one road that leads to oblivion. And basically, that has to lead to totalitarianism if it doesn't lead to Armageddon. Because we're already going to see that. Pay close attention to what happens in Europe this winter because now they're going to be deprived of energy. Uh, and energy is what keeps our civilization going, right? Yeah. This when people find themselves mess. sitting in the, in, the, in the cold and the dark and they're hungry, maybe that's what it's going to take for them to begin to question the, the dominant paradigm right now. But at any given time, at any given time, all it's going to take is enough people to wake up, to activate their minds, and become aware of the fact that 
we have the resources to completely change the paradigm. And so this is why I say we're at a crossroads. One road leads to oblivion. The other road leads to magnificent realities that we yeah, can see, only but we ne- just begin to understand. We need people, and I'm not saying this because of, like, whatever, but, like, we need more people to study the stuff that we're into, like philosophy and um, the origins of things and how things got to where they are and stop paying attention to the day-to-day grind bullshit because, like, staring at your TV and drowning out and doing the same shit you do every single day, clockwork is not going to get anything done. It's just going to contribute to this mess. So That's right. That's right. But, but I really appreciate the, what you're doing, man. I really do. And um, I appreciate, you know, the way you approach everything and it not not even just the the data stuff and obviously all your stuff with the Younger Dryas and the cataclysms and all that's amazing. But I th- also think your philosophy and you wanting to help people understand these things and everything, I think that that's amazing. And I think that you don't get enough credit for that. Um, but I want to give you a little here. So um, congratulations. Well, thanks, uh, Mike. But I also, again, I want to plug you again. You know, Festival of Dead, Sunday night. Please buy a ticket. Also, you know, if you want to go on one of these trips, check out Randall's website. Go check out, you know, know, what they're doing. They're going all over the place. Scablands, Tennessee. You know, you saw this mound trip. This thing looks amazing. So check that out. Um, Oh, yeah. Chocolate culture of the Southwest. There you go. We've, We've done three tours out there now. That Chaco documentary, I forget what it's on. Maybe Netflix is amazing too, where they talk yeah. about that sun, um, the, the sun dagger. Uh, yeah, the up the sun dagger. Exactly. We learned about yeah. that. Actually, I learned about that in high school. So shout out to my uh-huh. astronomy teacher. We were fortunate enough to have a, a, a planetarium in our high school. So Ooh, see, um, we're going to have a planetarium and an observatory at the Carlson Academy. Nice. That was Beautiful. that was a fun first hour for Maurice and I. Let me tell you. Dad, oh, I don't even remember it dabbled in the cannabis arts went one time on on the mush had a great time so uh, and i i got an a on my paper i i actually wrote a song to the beat of the sun uh doing the hydrogen walk so really uh yeah kind of nerdy but um but uh yeah so shout out to you know check all those amazing things out and again ancient apocalypse november 11th also earlier that day Please watch Randall on Joe Rogan with Graham Hancock. I'm sure it's going to be amazing. It always is when these two get together. So uh, check that out. And if you want to check out, um, you know, what we're doing, which isn't nearly as cool, but I I actually would appreciate it. Um, You know, we have our link tree link down below. We've got a Patreon. Uh, Randall was kind enough to actually, now this is history. This is the longest Mind Escape episode that we've ever done. So uh, this is history in the making out of 263 episodes. Uh, but if you're interested and you want to see more Randall, we do have two Randall episodes uh, that are on our Patreon. It's just $2 a month. And uh, both at one episode's on sacred geometry and the other one's on the cosmic numbers. Uh, we have a merch store. Uh, please leave us a nice review on Apple Podcast and Spotify or whatever you're listening to. And, um, yeah, check out our new podcast, uh, the Roswell UFO Symposium. I have the link tree linked down below there. We are just getting going with that. We are four episodes in, but we have an amazing, uh, the top UFO and UAP researchers are going to be on the show. We already have a lot of commitments from people. And uh, shout out to Toby, shout out to Shane, shout out to Chase. 
And shout out to everybody. We love everybody. I want to thank Maurice for coming back for this episode. He's busy editing our documentary and it's wedding season. Um, and no, he is not a, um, you know, he's not marrying people. He's just a photographer, folks. Yeah. <laughs> But listen, he's not he, a he's not a justice of the peace. He's not a justice of the peace. It did not take him two minutes online to um, start marrying people. But we love Maurice. We want Maurice back in the mix. So I'm sure after our documentary is done, he'll be uh, joining us uh, again. But uh, again, I just want to give a shout out to everybody. Uh, shout out to UFO Twitter. Shout out to everybody we love. And uh, listen, we're gonna do this again. And uh, but I just want to say I love everybody. Stay safe out there, and we'll catch you next time. Peace. Peace. Good night, everyone.